Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shit. Fuck him. Cute Bruce. I love Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? My God, how many of those are you going to open already? It's I, we, we haven't even started, Conrad. That's your third or fourth one already. Well, I, I feel like I need to start early based on last week's episode about the first draft. We got lots of reviews, lots of feedback. Overall, I think everyone was pleased to know that sometimes when we see a decision that's made on tv we say man what are they thinking well sometimes they might not be thinking a lot right bruce or sometimes they just overthink things to the point of overthinking things and sometimes you shouldn't think about something you should just feel it well i tell you what you've probably been feeling it lately you've been catching up on calls that we were due to make from brucepritchard.com but don't forget when you pick up a t-shirt at brucepritchard.com bruce will eventually call and thank you but you had some pretty heartwarming calls this week right bruce I did, and it's nice to talk to folks on the other side that listen to our podcast and don't judge it the same way that we do. And it's great to hear some of their stories, like Marco Maticali, who's battling cystic fibrosis. He bought an I'm Over shirt, and he did it because they were doing a documentary on him, and that's how he felt about his battle with cystic fibrosis and talked about how we were able to help get him through his days. And it kind of hit me in the feels there a little bit, but then, man, I got on the phone with Brian Navish whose wife kicked breast cancer's ass. And we were talking about cancer. He was talking about the similarities between his wife's cancer and my wife's cancer. And he says, you know, I bought a Brother Love shirt so we could go renew our vows in Vegas once she beat cancer. And that's exactly what he did. And I thought that was pretty cool. Then on the uh, lighter side of things, spoke to old Jennifer Houlihan. We talked about uh, grabbing all kind of Conrad ass in oh uh, New York City. So she said she wanted to grab somebody's ass, and you just bent over for it. You know, eventually, my person might actually listen to this show, so I would appreciate it if we would have a little kizab, kizab, fizab, or however you used to say that. Well, you know, your people, I think, were there, and they just, well, no. it, it just, no. they weren't. No. Well, it was on stage, Conrad, and it was in front of a bunch of people. Oh, this is probably okay, then. It was at our show. It was at our show, so you never know. You can grab Conrad's ass. No, you can't. She said she did ask permission. 
No. No, no, no they can't. That's rumor and innuendo. That's rumor and okay. innuendo. And you know what? Well, let's get into it, man. It's a show I've wanted to do for a long time. It's WrestleMania 4. And I guess I should give you a peek behind the curtain, Bruce. I don't know that we've ever shared this. But my first wrestling memory as a child is in the summer of 1988, uh, we traveled to visit my grandfather. He didn't live near us. And back in those days, you went to the video store on the weekends and you would rent, you know, three, four, five movies for the family to watch. And they decided, Hey, we need to keep something on the television to keep this little asshole occupied. Look, this is a double tape of wrestling. Let's get him this so we can play cards or do whatever adulting they were going to do. So WrestleMania four on VHS, the double decker. It's my very first wrestling memory. Wow. WrestleMania was your first, huh? Yeah. WrestleMania four. And by the way, thank you for renting that tape. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for helping me, uh, pay my salary back in the day. So that, that's pretty damn cool. But what a first, what a first, what a first. It kind of like popped your little cherry with WrestleMania four, huh? It's just fun to think about that. That happened like nearly 30 years ago. And now here we are talking about it. It, it probably isn't something you or I would have ever predicted, but here we are. But you know, Bruce, I'm glad we were talking about this because I want to know, like, what was your first wrestling memory? My very first wrestling memory was El Paso, Texas, watching the Funk Brothers, Dory and Terry Funk, wrestle on a tiny little probably 12-inch black and white screen. And I fell in love, and I knew at that point in time, I was four years old, that's what I wanted to do. We've got a picture of the double tape VHS for this show, WrestleMania four posted right now on our Instagram, uh, which is Instagram.com forward slash Pritchard show or at Pritchard show. If you're on Instagram and I want to do something fun, check out Instagram and tell us what your first wrestling memory was. And then here next week, we're going to go ahead and announce a winner and we'll give away. What do you want to do? A t-shirt and a fanny pack. God, both of them for free. Yeah, why not? Okay. So there you go. We want to know your first <laughs> wrestling memory. It's on Instagram. Uh, we'd love to hear that stuff, man. This is why we're all here, dude. You know, we're we're sharing our hobby together. So tell us your first wrestling memory on Instagram, and then next week we're going to give away a little prize pack. Man, there's a lot to cover here. Let's get started. You know, the show goes down, of course, on March 27th, 1988. They're at the Trump Plaza in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And, uh, I guess we'll just start from the beginning, you know, back in the day, we were always led to believe that you guys sort of booked from one WrestleMania to the next, meaning, you know, where you want to wind up and then you just work backwards. Was that the case for this WrestleMania as well? I think it was in Vince's head. And I started in 1987 in the summer of 1987 and Vince pretty much had the whole idea of the third time for him that, uh, or the third time one-on-one -on -one for him that Hulk and Andre would actually be facing each other. So he had that in his head for the main attraction for WrestleMania four. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that Bruce, because it feels like a bit of a departure, this WrestleMania four. And, and I guess we'll get into that, but of course they don't wind up going with Hulk and Andre on top. They wind up doing a tournament concept and you know, at the time it, probably didn't make any sense that they would do a tournament like from three to four. You don't necessarily know what other opportunities are going to come in and how those curveballs get to be. When was the decision made 
as far as you know, to make it a tournament and to make Macho Man the world champ? The first time that I heard about it was in November, December of 1987, when we were getting when we were getting ready to plan and the announcement was being made of the main event, the live show on NBC, and that he was going to be taking the championship off of Hulk and that Hulk would be doing a movie during the summer of 1988. So we're going to get into everything you just said there, but I want to sort of circle back that this is the first WrestleMania since WrestleMania three, of course, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Bruce, but WrestleMania three was probably the biggest show in wrestling history as far as finances or any other metric, right? WrestleMania three was, yeah, it was a Guinness book of world records record setter. So it was huge. And of course the first WrestleMania was a huge success. You got all the stars in the wrestling business, all the celebrities from the mainstream, the rock and wrestling connection, Muhammad Ali, all that happens in Madison square garden in Manhattan. You guys are doing stuff with SNL and everybody else. And then Vince tries to follow that up with a big multi-city concept show for WrestleMania two, and he makes it larger than life. He's got New York, LA and Chicago, or at least the suburbs. And then for three, he books the biggest match ever, and it's in a freaking dome. Is it fair to say that Vince felt some pressure to make every WrestleMania bigger than the previous year? Vince feels pressure every year to make WrestleMania bigger than than the last one. And ever since I've known him, Vince has wanted to do something bigger and more grandiose than what he did previously. So how does Trump Plaza come into the mix? I mean, you're coming out of a dome. And now you're not, you're, you're sort of going to switch gears. We're not going to go to a bigger place. We're going to go to a more, well, we'll get into it. How does Trump Plaza come into the mix? Who reached out to whom and whatnot? Trump Plaza came into the mix because it was still kind of considered it's that Northeast market. In some ways, it's still almost considered the New York market. You got New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey. It's, it's very close. And people in New York don't think twice about taking a weekend trip to Atlantic City for a special event. So it was a way to come back to the Northeast to bring WrestleMania back. In addition to that, it was a casino setting. So it was a big fight feel. It was something different. Trump plaza was brand new donald trump had had purchased the casinos there and had taken control over the convention center next to trump plaza so his idea was hey i'd really love to bring you guys to atlantic city kind of like a big fight kind of like they would bring a big fight to bring wrestlemania to a casino atmosphere and they made an offer that he couldn't refuse. They, they offered to pay and they offered to pick up the, all the hotel expenses that were normally associated with WrestleMania. So it was a very handsome deal. Well, the observer says that, uh, the gate, including the site fee was $1.6 million. Does that sound about right to you? I, you know, in those days, I really didn't pay that much attention to the gates and everything. So as far as dollars and, and that, I know that Trump paid an awful lot and gave an awful lot as far as the, the hotel rooms, as far as the building and helping us redecorate that building to make it look like it had never looked before. Um, the Atlantic City Convention Center is a dump. I mean, it's a dump and a half. The, um, there's rumor and innuendo out there that because Trump was able to land WrestleMania, 
he was able to leverage that into some naming rights for that building. Is that the way you remember hearing that story go down? I really don't know. I know Trump, Trump had the, had the building as part of his whole casino deal. And Trump rented that building out. Trump ran a lot of events there from boxing and the beauty pageants and all that stuff in the convention center. So when you're saying you had to sort of redecorate it, the carpet that's coming down the steps, is that something y'all added? Everything you see in that building aesthetically, we added from the lighting and just it, it looked like anyone that's ever been to the Cow Palace. Cow Palace is not a pretty building either. We we added a lot of lightings. We added just a lot of paint and just aesthetics to make the building look bet, better. Um, because other than that, it looked like a giant barn. So you're saying we, are you saying WWE went to that expense? WWE, or you, ha- yes. you had Trump do it on your behalf or no, no WWE did it. So when WWE does it, how far in advance do they go in and start making some of these improvements to the actual building? I don't really remember. I know we were there probably four or five days ahead of time, but I think that there were people in there that they commissioned to go in and paint some things. The lighting and setup was probably up maybe a day or two before the event. And you've told us before here on the show that the lighting that you guys put where it almost looks like uh, it sort of highlights the structure of the roof or the ceiling and with the different color treatments and all that. You guys actually did that and then left it for them, right? <laughs> yeah, we did. We used the same thing the next year, but it, it was, we, we went in and made a lot of improvements and it wasn't like we could take a lot of that stuff out and use it elsewhere and re recycle it and reuse it. Uh, Trump was really good to us and they bent over backwards to try and make the event as big of a success as it could be. So it was the least we could do. So to be clear, Donald Trump called Vince McMahon or someone on his staff called the office in an effort to try to bring more patronage to his casino. I think that the initial contact was made with Basil DeVito and someone in Trump's office about working together and it grew from there. Hypothetically, do you know about when that call would have happened? Would this be the spring of 87? No, it would not. It would have been the summer and or fall of 1987. Okay. So WrestleMania one was in New York city. Uh, two, as we said, was New York, Chicago, and LA threes in the suburbs of Detroit in a dome. And now four is going to be in a casino in New Jersey before that call comes in and you guys make a commitment. Do you know if any other cities or buildings were discussed? I know that we had discussed what's next. And Vince had on his list, Vince always loved Madison square garden. He felt that Madison square garden added prestige to any event. Vince was talking about going back to Madison square garden. We were talking about doing something in Florida. There were a lot of places that were discussed and Vince kept leaning towards the Northeast. And when this deal came up, the availability of doing the casino and the glamour glitz and glamour of doing it in a casino, um, was attractive to him. Make it different. I'm glad you said that because the narrative for a long time has been that Vince took wrestling out of the smoke filled arenas and national guard armories was Vince sort of romantic about the idea of the WWF being presented as more quote unquote, high class entertainment. I think Vince presented his product in a much higher class 
product than what had been presented in the past. You know, I went back and looked at tapes from Houston wrestling before, and it was, it was smoke filled arenas. Your cameras are looking through smoke, you know, to look at the wrestlers and with the lighting packages and the production values that WWE had at the time, it made for a different product. But I guess what I'm saying is the reason he is attracted to this idea is the sort of cachet of doing it with a casino. It does sort of give the air that you're a classier presentation, right? And even leveled up from what you guys had done. Maybe at three, three was a huge, massive humanity and a big spectacle, but it does come across as more like HBO boxing or whatever. Right. I think so. And it, it's presented in a, just a different way as well with the casino involvement. How was, um, how was Trump as a partner for this? Was he doing a lot of PR for you guys? And you know, were there pros and cons of working with Trump as a promoter here in 88? Well, Trump was actually great as a promoter because that's what he does. Right. He promoted himself. He was promoting his casino and this was an opportunity for the Trump casino name to be on a national level, worldwide, international level as a destination. So not only was it good for him locally in the New York market and in New Jersey and Atlantic city, this now was a show place to be featured on our programming that went worldwide. And now Trump Plaza and Trump castle, that all became a destination for people all over the world. I want to go where they had WrestleMania. So it's great for him. Great rate name recognition. What did you like most about the venue and, and what did you dislike the most? I mean, you talked about how maybe it wasn't, you know, in the best shape. You had to do some different lighting. You had to do some paint. What did you like about it? Uh, that it was close to the hotel. <laughs> I had to just walk across a, a driveway to get to the building. That was nice. There wasn't a whole lot to like about it. We didn't have dressing rooms. The dressing room was on a stage in the back. The facility and the rooms around it for us to do pre-tapes and us to do other production things really didn't exist. It was old. It was ugly. Um, it was, it was close to the hotel. Yeah. Let's talk about casino buys because a lot of our listeners may not be boxing or MMA fans who are familiar with the practice, but casino buys had to be another reason that Vince liked this idea. It was a reason that he liked it, but also a reason he didn't like it. Well, we're going to talk Here's... about why he didn't like it. First, explain what it is to our listeners. What a casino buy is, is the casinos usually purchase a number of tickets to an event being held in their facilities and they give those to their high rollers and their high rollers are the ones that are going to get first crack at the best seats. Then from there, they send them out and they give them out to their less than high rollers and what have you. Now, the other thing I want to mention here is because this show is being presented to a gambling audience on the boardwalk in Atlantic city. And there is a scarcity factor involved as compared to the prior year at WrestleMania. You guys can charge higher ticket prices across the board, not just casino buys, right? We did definitely charge higher ticket prices for the premium tickets. And there were still, because we still wanted to present it as a family event and someplace you could take your family. So the upper sections, they were 
not nearly as high as is what a lot of people imagine. They weren't what, you know, they sure as hell weren't when you do the scale, what they were at WrestleMania three. That's what I wanted but to these ask. Were, is, yeah. Do you think this is, this WrestleMania had the highest ticket prices in WWF history had to, right? I probably so. And I don't know without looking at it, but it, it, it was up until this point. Yes. In hindsight, you know, the higher ticket prices and casino buys sort of keep traditional wrestling fans away from the show and the crowd that does show up sort of comes off as dead by comparison sometimes, right? That has to hurt part of the presentation for the matches. It, it did hurt and it made for, you know, people watching on television feel like the crowd was not interested in what was, was going on, especially, you know, those prime seats directly across from the hard camera. Yeah. And we learned our lesson here. That's what I was going to say. It feels like this would have happened one time. And then after that, and they still do it to this day, they put the seats where they're putting their quote unquote celebrities or family members or whatever, either behind the announcers on the floor or underneath the hard cam on the floor. So, you know, undertaker's wife, isn't going to go bananas every time someone comes out because it's sort of old hat to her. So let's stick her down there. Right. Well, you're going to move them out of camera range. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the matches lack heat and that's something that a lot of people ask questions about. Why did, why weren't the fans into it? Well, because they weren't really your typical wrestling fans. Now the, the other advantage of a casino buy is not only do they buy the tickets, but because you know, you've got pretty much a guaranteed sale. And I'm sure this would have been part of the negotiation with Trump. You can charge a higher amount. So I'm sure part of the package to bring a WrestleMania in involves, we want you to pay for us to be here. You're going to have to agree to market within your facility. You're going to have to guarantee us certain tax breaks if you can. And if you can't, you know, you've got to do X, Y, and Z for us, but also too, you're going to get, as you said, a bunch of the hotel stuff comped, which is normally a part of your overhead, but Oh, by the way, we want you to buy X number of seats at X amount of dollars. And when there's no negotiation and no real salesmanship to it, it's just part of the deal. You can hit a lick here at the gate, right? Absolutely. And it was, it was profitable and we were in business to make money. So this was a great deal to make money at the gate, make more money at the gate that they had previously. In addition to your pay-per-view buys. So let's talk about that. Obviously it hurts the presentation to have non-traditional wrestling fans there, but it doesn't hurt the pocketbook because they're bringing in $1.6 million at the gate. And that's basically what you brought in for WrestleMania three but in a much smaller building. So process that the amazing spectacle that was WrestleMania three and all those folks. What companies would you want to work for? Just capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good companies like bank of America, which just earned the prestigious just capital 2024 seal bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. 
Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. And they bring in roughly the same amount of money from ticket sales for this much smaller building. It's pretty remarkable, is it not? It is, and it, and it spoke to the power of WrestleMania that you know Trump was willing to do that, and that they, in a lot of respects, they came to us with all of that. Trump was a promotional machine, right? He wanted his name out there, and he was willing to do any and everything. So he was the perfect partner because he was an over-the-top promoter, and everything that he touched and everything that he did, he would point to whether it was a championship boxing event or whether it was WrestleMania, Trump promoted. I mean, everything that he did, he pointed back to WrestleMania in Atlantic City. You got to see this. This thing is going to be great. Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant. It was a huge deal. There was even a a double page spread that you guys did, which I just thought was amazing. And we'll throw it up on Instagram. But it's Hogan with his um, blue and yellow Hulkamania shirt and the old world title. And he's got his arms stretched out and he's standing in front of the wide shot of WrestleMania three. And it says the biggest arena crowd in history came to see the best. Every time you book an event, think about this. And it's got a little paragraph there talking about how many people came and what the record was. And then in big, bold letters, awesome drawing power. I mean, you guys had the hot hand after WrestleMania three. So it makes sense that somebody would want to sort of go all out to get this to their bid, their building and their venue. We were the pretty girl to dance. Yeah. No doubt about it. It's funny though. We're going to post this because this ad that they're pushing out here, you know, says awesome drawing power. And then it says, call Ed Cohen and it's got his phone number. I mean, they were actively looking for opportunities to capitalize on the success of WrestleMania three. The ad you're talking about was a trade was a trade ad for oh, yeah, arenas, and it was that yeah. that was something that you know it was a great <laughs> ad. Here we had set the indoor attendance record, you know why not brag about it? I agree. And it's just another way to to talk about it. I, I wasn't I wasn't implying that it was in the WWF magazine, which is funny because yeah. I'm sure somebody may have thought that. So I'm glad you clarified, but it's still really cool though to see that you guys were like puffing your chest out about, hey, I know you think we're just wrestling, but look at this shit. Well, if you don't puff your chest out and you don't tell people what you're doing, who the hell do you expect to? You mean like that we're the two-time, two-time podcast champions of the world? Something like, to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson. I like just want to point that out. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about pay-per-view because at the time it's in its infancy. And I think these days people sort of take it for granted. I mean, it, these days you just press a button and boom, you're done. But pay-per-view was still a relatively new concept here in March of 88, right, Bruce? Well, it was relatively new concept overall. In addition to that, it was a hassle to get still because you still had to order in advance and you had to have a technician either come out and install a special box in your home that they would then come out and uninstall after the event or you had to go pick up a box from your cable company, pay in advance, to get the event. So it was a hassle. It, it was a pain and direct TV had not yet come into play either yet. At this time, direct TV wasn't even on the radar of anybody. You had, uh, satellites, huge satellites, people who had personal satellite dishes, and then you had cable TV and viewers choice. And that was it. And, and pay-per-view was obviously not something that 
you, know, you couldn't just go rent a movie on pay-per-view the way you can now. It was an event. It was Mike Tyson. It was WWE. It was a happening. Um, and you guys were using a pricing strategy at the time of 1995. Were you ever a part of those pricing strategy discussions? How did you guys land on 1995? I really, I have no idea that at that point in the company, that was something that, that had been done. I believe it was the same price that they did for WrestleMania three. But uh, later on, obviously, uh, yeah, I definitely was involved in a lot of those conversations as far as the price point for pay-per-view. Roughly how much of that 1995 would come to the WWF? How would it come and when? 50% roughly. Uh, in some cases, even less than that in the infancy. But the you wouldn't get that for at least 90 days after the event, because you have all of these little cable companies that you have the big cable company, for example, you would have Comcast and then Comcast would have in Houston, Texas, they would probably have six different offices in six different little companies within one city that would all sell pay-per-view and that you would have to go through. Well, each one of those would then have to report to their main office and that main office would then have to report to that main office and that office would then send their reports and their money in to viewers choice or whoever it is. They would then wait. They would collect the money, even though a lot of times they collected it in advance, they would collect the money. Then that money would have to go through all the cycles and everybody would get their piece. Then finally the promoter would get their piece long after the fact. And then that's why guys had to wait 90 days before checks would even come out before we would even have any real idea as to how well we did. Now you could get, you could get a, a sampling, but even the sampling unfortunately was not true. That's why I would always laugh at, at the dirt sheets that would say, Oh, this is what they did because I called several cable companies Calling several cable companies is kind of like the Nielsen ratings. It, it's it's a joke. You can't really – you're getting an operator. You're getting someone on the other line that doesn't know who you are, and they're saying, oh, yeah, we did really good here. Well, really good to them may mean that they got two buys that that operator took. Or, yeah, we didn't get any buys here. Not Not that many people called for it, when in reality they got several hundred or several thousand. Um, just an, just an inaccurate science. It's gotta be rough trying to collect all that and chase it down. How many people were on staff to sort of help bird dog that and, and wrangle the money in? There were people, I want to say, you know, in the pay-per-view division and, and the cable division, cause that all still was a function of the folks that worked with the cable companies and worked with viewers choice. You're at their mercy. And you're at the mercy of the cable operators and you're at the mercy of the pay-per-view companies. So you guys wind up selling 585,000 pay-per-views at the time. And the pay-per-view revenue alone for this show is $11.6 million. So you've got 1.6 at the gate plus 11.6 here for pay-per-view revenue and compare that to WrestleMania three and the total for everything, all things considered all in for WrestleMania three was only about 10 million. So you guys are really doing much better financially than WrestleMania three here has to be considered a success. Um, how big was pay-per-view penetration at the time? You know, I, I think 
people sort of take that for granted that it was more complicated, but really not everybody even had it. Right. You know, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I bet you that it was not even half of cable subscribers had availability for pay-per-view in 1988. So let's talk about that because what mania had done before you guys are doing again here and it's called closed circuit. So for WrestleMania three, you guys had like 160 locations Explain to our younger viewers who have no idea what we're talking about, how closed circuit worked for wrestling pay-per-views like this. You get a big arena, maybe where your normal, you know, house shows would be. You put a gigantic movie screen in there and you rent video equipment and we send a signal through a satellite to that building and they put the live event up on a screen and you all watch it together up on like in a movie house. A lot of times we did close circuit locations in a movie theater if the if the theater had satellite capabilities. So what the strategy behind that was looking at areas that didn't have any pay-per-view capabilities and you look at the areas where they didn't offer pay-per-view and and a lot of places in Canada as well they hadn't really adopted pay-per-view yet where you have strong markets and where you've done business before we would do close circuit and that would be an event to come to the arena and witness WrestleMania live in the arena with several other wrestling fans. And that's what close circuit was. Does a $15 price point for closed circuit sound right to you? In my research, I saw ticket stubs for all over that were 15 bucks. Yeah, that sounds about right. Probably. Yeah. How are those deals made for closed circuit? Did you guys sell the licensing rights to local promoters? Did you just handle it all yourselves? Give us an idea how that shook out. Most of the closed circuit locations were dealt with no different than a house show. We, instead of bringing all the wrestlers and, and the ring and everything in, we rented the equipment and we had a local promoter in the area handle the promotion for it, but we rented all of the equipment, ran it just like a house show. So you guys do about 220,000 tickets for closed circuit. And I want you to process that the biggest WrestleMania ever a couple of years ago in Dallas had like a hundred thousand folks there. WrestleMania four had 220,000 people crammed into arenas and movie theaters across North America for a closed circuit gross of over 3 million. So revenues are up, man. You know, you're going to talk about just under 17 million, roughly 17 million. Uh, and that's between your live gate and your pay-per-views and your closed circuit. But it's been said that against expectations, WrestleMania four was a bit of a disappointment because you were on such a high at WrestleMania three. And a lot of people had an expectation that you were going to be able to do more than 20 million. Some folks even speculating as high as 26 million based on the success of the main event, which we're going to cover in a minute. And also just the momentum that you had from three, but you also consider, and this is something that I think people sort of lose sight of the pay-per-view concept was much more readily available in 88 than it was in 87. Do you remember WrestleMania four being financially successful, but not necessarily meeting expectations? I don't know that anyone really had specific expectations per se. I think that overall looking at it, we were looking at this as a launch pad for the next year. 
we knew that it was kind of the closing of a chapter, at least we thought at the time, for Hulk for a while and Andre. So this was a new beginning. We knew that kind of after the fact that, okay, we're going to have to rebuild again. The tournament concept, I think, kind of took away a little bit of the luster of having the big WrestleMania match, even though promotion-wise and everybody that looks at the, goes back and looks at the promotion, the promotion was all about Hulk Andre. Um, I don't know. I don't know what expectations were. I think everyone was happy with the end result, though. In the end, ticket sales were slow for this. You guys sold out WrestleMania three much faster, and this show was slower to sell. Um, how much of that do you blame on the location? How much of that do you blame on ticket prices? How much do you blame on the tournament concept? I think that the majority, you know, probably had to do with the combination of ticket prices and location. Atlantic city was not, especially at that time was not the family friendly locale that people wanted to gather the kids up and come down and go to some wrestling matches, uh, no matter what it was, even if it was in Trump Plaza, they, you still had a fight to get them in there. So I think it's a combination of the locale and ticket prices. I feel like I should mention too, uh, pay-per-view wasn't really a thing outside of the United States and Canada. So the idea would be to sell the international rights for additional money later. Then you've got all the merch you're going to sell for WrestleMania through the magazines and mail order. And of course the actual event itself was going to sell merch, but maybe most of all, you've got the video cassette and we started talking about WrestleMania four with my memory of seeing it on VHS. And back then, of course, the VHS business and that whole rental market was much different. Talk to me about how those deals were put together, because from my recollection, you guys were selling the tapes for a much higher price than what you would later sell DVDs for. And the rental stores are doing major business. This is way before OTT and Netflix and all that stuff. So I imagine the rental stores are just buying bundles of these things. Can you ballpark the value of a VHS deal for WrestleMania? Well, WrestleMania was without a doubt the largest videotape sales of any videotape title in the Coliseum library each year. People waited for that WrestleMania show to come out on VHS. I, again, God, I really don't remember the exact number. I think it was $69.95 is what the, the cost of the tape was. The allure of WrestleMania 4 was it was a double tape, as you stated earlier. It was a two-cassette tape, essentially for the price of one. So people are getting four hours and all. You know, we did an extra Coliseum exclusive for that. But, yeah, WrestleMania, all of the WrestleMania titles each year for Coliseum Video, those were the best sellers. Uh, of course, about seven weeks prior to the show, you guys managed to pull off the impossible, the main event on NBC in prime time. And it has Hulk Hogan and Andre, the giant in front of a record that still stands today, 33 million people for a 15.2 rating. And we covered that show in long form in our archives over at youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle and Bruce on the heels of that main event show expectations for WrestleMania had to be higher than ever before. Were they not? Awareness was definitely higher than ever before. And I think that that was 
people, the, the interest of everyone seeing it for the first time on the main event on NBC. So yeah, we were definitely hoping that we had reached a whole new audience and that people were interested as to what was going to happen with the WWF championship. The last for a lot of people, you know, unfortunately they only tuned into the NBC show. Some followed over on syndication, but there was a lot of interest in February. The tournament concept of course was in place prior to that angle. Uh, but given how well it came off, was there ever a thought to maybe scratching the tournament concept and just doubling down and doing Andre three in the main event and scrapping the tournament completely? No, because we didn't have Hulk for the summer and Andre obviously was not in shape to be able to carry the WWF championship at the time we needed to make a move and we needed a new champion and a new, a new direction until Hulk came back. Um, you've often said that this tournament was really Vince's idea. I'm going to ask another way here. Was Pat Patterson or anybody else involved in that decision-making process or was it always just Vince adamant? It's gotta be a tournament. Vince uh, and Pat were working together at the time on creative. So I'm sure that Pat had input into it, but it was Vince's idea. Well, in a tournament made it feel, you know, like a legitimate sport. So it's fair to say that the tournament was born out of just wanting to give Hogan some time off the tournament concept was born out of having to get the championship off of Hogan and needing someone else to be the champion and needing a way to get there. Of course, Hogan's wife was set to give birth to their first child just a month after WrestleMania. And of course, that's when the world was introduced to Brooke Hogan, brother. Um, the reason that was given sort of storyline, I guess, was that Hogan was going to go to Hollywood to make movies. But when a reporter asked Hogan, if he was going to the movies, he said something like, yeah, I'm going to see fatal attraction. How far along into the planning of no holds barred were you guys by February of 88? Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. Wow. I don't really know. Uh, I think that they had already had the script and they had everything ready to go because they were pretty damn set and (laughs) it takes an awful lot of preparation. I wasn't involved in in the making of the movie that far in advance because I was still pretty damn new to the company. So I don't know how far they had it in, in the works. Why did, um, Vince want to keep it a secret that he was trying to make this movie? I don't know that he did keep it a secret as far as in the Hollywood, it wasn't something that we promoted on air, but in the Hollywood trades and everywhere else, he was making a lot of noise about being in the movie business and making a movie. 
did anyone in the office sort of second guess going away from Hogan being in the main event as champion? That had been the formula for the three prior WrestleManias where each one was bigger than the last. And the commonality was Hogan's in the main event and Hogan's the champion and he's not here. And he's the golden goose. So there were a lot of people that were afraid of the unknown and what's going to happen now, as far as Hulk being away, a lot of people didn't, didn't know anything other than Hulk Hogan as the WWF, (laughs) the WWF with Hulk Hogan, the thought of, trying to operate without him for some who had never experienced uh, wrestling in any other form other than the WWF. I think they were concerned and thinking, Oh my God, what do we do now? Um, let's talk a little bit about the world title here. Of course, these days folks say the belt is a prop and titles don't matter, whatever. But back in the eighties, man, the title mattered. Do you think Hogan was really the first guy to sort of eclipse the title? And I'm meaning at this point in, in early 88, folks are coming to the arena, not to see the world champion. They're coming to see Hulk Hogan, right? Hulk Hogan, without a doubt, transcended the title and Hulk Hogan was, you know, like I said, second ago, Hulk Hogan and the WWF were one in the same, right? Um, so the Saturday night main event comes along in March and it does a 10 rating. It's down considerably though, from main event. Do you attribute the dip in the ratings to the lack of Hogan, Andre not being in prime time, or do you just feel like maybe you guys have lost a little bit of momentum as far as the mainstream? No, the drop in the ratings was from household using television, the hut levels between prime time on a Friday night at seven o'clock and late night on a Saturday night. You you mentioned a minute ago, you know, people sort of being concerned about moving away from the golden goose. Uh, you know, what's going to happen with Hogan when Hogan takes a break and all that. Do you think that that was maybe a misstep on Vince's side? You know, Vince obviously has these really big goals and dreams and aspirations of I'm going to start a bodybuilding federation, or I'm going to make movies, or I'm going to get into nutritional supplements, or I'm going to start a football league. Do you think that had Vince sort of stayed on the course because Hogan didn't go on to be a big movie star. And I know some people will tweet me and say, oh, that's not true. He did suburban commando, but you know what I mean? He didn't go on to be the rock. Do you think if he would have just said, God damn pal, we're making more money than ever before. Let's just keep doing that that maybe business would have been stronger? Or do you think that in hindsight, it was the right call because WrestleMania five was back through the roof. I think people can second guess all day long. You'll never know until you try and you won't know unless you get out there and you experiment and, and fail (laughs) either succeed or fail. And you're never going to go. You're never going to know. Okay. What if we kept Hogan going on? The same people would say, Oh my God, I'm sick of Hulk Hogan. Where are they going to give him a break? Give us something else. So there's arguments on both sides of that, and no one would know unless we actually went out there and experimented and tried something else. Well, I didn't mean it so much, uh, you know, the critical side. I just meant the revenue, the dollars. Overall, though, you know, you had been with the company, I think, since April of 87. Here we are in March of 88, so just about a year later. Where would you place company morale from the time when you started to now? Up, down, about the same? I think about the same. I, I never really, uh, I never really noticed 
especially at that time, company morale, everything was on an upswing. We, we were doing so many new things and moving so quickly. There wasn't time to sit back and judge. Um, there weren't unhappy people around, and I, I certainly didn't associate with them. How if ex- there were. How excited were you as a kid to be at WrestleMania? You're still very much a youngster. I don't think people know how young you were when you started there. But this is the fourth WrestleMania and all the years prior, you'd been in the business, but sort of on the other side of the fence. And now you're inside and you're at the big show. What was your feeling at this being your first WrestleMania? Okay. Well, you know, if you can imagine being 25 years old and living your dream, being a part of not just being a part of, but being a major part of a production end and and creative and, and, and all of these other things on a television end. And it was a production unlike anything I had ever seen up until that point. It was it was WrestleMania. I had seen all of the other WrestleManias. I'd seen one, two, and three. I watched them. But to be able to experience and be a part of the whole hoopla and to go to your room and have chocolate bars, giant chocolate bars that had the WrestleMania 4 logo etched into them. I, I I still have that stuff somewhere. I don't have the chocolate bars, but I have all of the, the newspapers, all of the promotional material, everything. It was everywhere you turned and I'd never experienced anything like that before. So it was to say it was awe inspiring. It was awe inspiring. It was like walking through a maze in a dream. Of course, you'd been doing a lot of television production around this time, and it comes out that uh, you guys are going to be moving away from video one. You're going to drop them and instead open up your own in-house production in Connecticut. How did that come to be? Well, Vince had been using video one in Baltimore for years, and when he moved everything to Stanford, Connecticut, he was building his own production facility. So that was, everyone knew that. that that wasn't something that just was decided upon. Vince had been building his production facility for some time at that point. And the production facility officially opened in January of that year, January or February of 1988. So that was the transition to move everything from video one and bring the key people that we wanted from video one that were willing to make the move and bring them to Stanford and continue just in our own house. You were a part of working with those guys at video one for the folks who had been there longer than you, you know, not everybody can, can make the jump. Was it like losing family members to some of those guys? I mean, cause it had been years. We didn't lose anybody. Really? You kept them all, kept them all. Well, there you go. Uh, the, the only, the only person that didn't come that I recall, but he, he still made, he still remained on the road for us was a guy by the name of Bob Dean. Um, and the only one that almost didn't come that wasn't, wasn't high on coming was Kevin Dunn. And we fought to keep Kevin and brought Kevin on and now he's running the damn place. So not long after you guys make the decision to sort of bring everything in house. You start running ads and the trades for a new interview guy, a new play by play guy and a senior producer. 
is the guy you land one of the guys you landed in this job search sean mooney i think so sean sean may have come right about this time we we were uh finishing up with craig to george and i and i had i think i let craig go right before wrestlemania four but we were through with craig to george plus we had this huge production facility joel watts was originally slated bill watts son who came over to the WWF with me, Joel was originally slated to run the production facility. So Joel left and all of a sudden I inherited all that. I didn't have a clue. I had no clue how to run a production facility. We were looking for a a producer that had production experience to run the day-to-day operations of the production facility. And that's right about the time that we hired Chris Carmody who came from, I believe, golf and came from CBS Sports or something like that. Really nice guy, but just not um, not able to adapt to to the world of the WWF at the time. But we were look we had we had a huge studio to staff. We needed editors. We needed producers. We needed uh, in-house talent that could live there and be able to do things, uh, on a dime where before we'd been flying in Oakland, flying in monsoon and everybody. Now we wanted people in Connecticut. You know, I've often wondered, I wanted to talk about Sean Mooney here because when you see Sean Mooney today in 2018, 30 years after we first were introduced to him in 1988, it looks like it's been about 10 years not 30 years since we were first introduced and, and dusty. All right, let's switch gears here. and Let's talk about Jim Crockett promotions. And this is such an overlooked part of this story. And I can't wait. Uh, let's start from the beginning. I guess let's go back to Thanksgiving of 87. They're going to run their version of WrestleMania Starcade, And they usually run it on Thanksgiving night and 87 is no exception. And this is going to be the first time that they don't just do closed circuit. They're actually doing pay-per-view Vince does the power play. And creates another pay-per-view out of thin air survivor series. Of course, prior to Starcade being on pay-per-view, the only wrestling pay-per-view ever was WrestleMania. Now Vince feels threatened. He's not really happy that somebody's coming in and presenting wrestling on pay-per-view. So he wants to compete and he creates survivor series and he tries to make a power play where he tells the cable systems don't stagger us because Starcade moved their start time to be early to allow survivor series to still air and not make wrestling fans choose. And Vince says, if you carry Starcade, you can't have WrestleMania and many cable systems tuck tail and say, we're just carrying survivor series. Then we don't want to lose the money for WrestleMania in the end. It cost Jim Crockett promotions around two and a half million dollars. They go for round two in January on January 24th, this bunkhouse stampede. They're back on pay-per-view. And Vince, this time, can't get a pay-per-view pulled together. The cable systems want nothing to do with it. So instead, he goes to USA and gets the Royal Rumble. And he creates the second big event that we still know to this day. And it's all just a mess with Jim Crockett Promotions, pay-per-view, bunkhouse stampede. And now here we are. Okay. And now here we are, Super Sunday. It's March 27th, and they're going to run WrestleMania 4. And Jim Crockett Promotions, this time has TBS step up to the plate and they create the very first clash of the champions. And they want to go head to head with WrestleMania four. 
So exactly what Vince did to them in January, creating the Royal rumble on USA for free head to head with bunkhouse stampede. They're going to run clash to the champions for free on TBS against WrestleMania four. Critically, it is a huge success. High marks across the board for clash of the champions, and they get a 5.6 rating head to head for free on TBS. And I think TBS really stepped up their production. They had a classic main event match that we've probably all heard about Ric Flair defending his title against a young upstart with face paint and a blonde flat top sting Meltzer predicted a six rating and it actually comes in at a 5.6, but that's over 2 million homes in the process who are watching this. When did you guys first hear that Crockett was planning on opposing your WrestleMania extravaganza on pay-per-view with a free show on TBS? Uh, probably shortly after the Royal rumble in that time, we had known for a month or two. Uh, but you know, it's funny. Everybody forgets that the Royal rumble held the cable rating for several years that year. Well, I've always been curious to talk about this because there's been speculation and rumor and innuendo, obviously survivor series hurt Starcade, no doubt about it. Point WWF. But Bunkhouse Stampede is still profitable, but not probably what it could be for January. And you guys heard them with the free Royal Rumble. But I got to think, based on WrestleMania 4 not hitting the, the numbers that people had expected, maybe the Clash of the Champions hurt a little bit. Did anybody see the Flair Sting main event as real competition within the organization? I think that the fact that they were on TBS for free and the way that they market it was great business and being able to market a free show versus a pay show, which is how they marketed it was see us for free and you don't have to pay. And it's a world championship match. Um, the thought of sting and flair in 1988, you know, did not have the allure of sting flair. Now that one match, I think most people would argue is what made coming Sting. out party for sting. Absolutely. I mean that, that one match in 45 minutes, Ric Flair made the next, uh, superstar for WCW. I feel like, you know, and, and I want, I'm going to get so much hate for this. Send your hate tweets to at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. I feel like on this night on super Sunday, when it was all said and done, sting was more of a made man after the show than he was going in than macho man was. Now, don't get me wrong. Macho Man winning the tournament and becoming the world champion and blah, blah, blah. Huge deal. Not arguing that. Not even saying that Macho Man wasn't a bigger star in the business. I agree with that. I'm just saying as far as one night, this was supposed to be Macho Man's coronation, but because Hogan's there, because Liz is there, and because people really sort of kind of expected it compared to Sting, no, relatively unknown. I mean, lower mid-card guy maybe, but he had a good look. Coming out of this, Sting was more of the made man to me. Shit on it, Bruce. No, I disagree with that, but I do think that without a doubt, this one match and this one night made Sting the franchise guy for WCW going forward. I don't know that anybody uh, saw that in him, and he more than delivered. He had a great dancing partner in Ric Flair, and Ric Flair went out there and said, you know, this is how you make somebody, and he did it. So it was a great match and it was a great coming out party for Sting. And it was good business on WCW's part to run head up. 
Did Actually, you, I don't think they were WCW at the time. They were what the NWA or whatever they yeah. were. Did you watch their show here? I'm not live, yeah, of I, course, but I'm saying uh, you, <laughs> don't be a dumbass. Yeah, ass. I Come did. On. No, I did. So, uh, what did you think of the show when you were done with it? Cause I know you guys like to compare and contrast and I'm sure at the time you're very much having a Peter measuring contest or you're saying, Oh, well this was better. Or we had that better. Or, oh, I like that they did this, but we had this better. Who do you watch that with? What's the setting like? I probably watched it in my office. I just probably just got a tape of it and watched a air check in my office. But I remember the only thing that I remember from that entire night is the flare sting match. Because for me, knowing, knowing Steve being three months in the business, I was so proud of him and thinking, all right, good for you. Because I guarantee you going into that match, there probably weren't a whole lot of people that saw that as a coming out party for sting. They just saw it is, is a match, a world title match to put on and they'll have a good little match, but stings performance flares performance was over the top off the chart. And was was truly a great match and it really made a star you had uh the road warriors teaming with dusty Rhodes on that show against the powers of pain and ivan koloff in a barbed wire match you had lex and barry uh taking on arn and tully for the tag titles you had uh, the midnight express working with the fantastics with lots of stuff on that clash of the champions card but you're right the takeaway is always that sting match do you think Vince ever sat down and watched shows from the competition in that era? I mean, would he have seen clash of the champions at all, or just heard about it from people? Probably just heard about it. Um, one of the things I found funny in my research is I don't know how you guys managed to pull this off, but the rumor and innuendo is you motherfuckers actually managed to run a WWF hotline commercial inside of clash of the champions. Do you remember hearing that? Yeah, we did that all the time. That is so tremendous to me that that you were able to place some sort of phantom by where they don't know it's you. And then, you know, the right hand doesn't speak to the left hand and ta-da, it runs. I mean, you that's have to do a phantom by for shit. TBS, you know, TBS didn't, they looked at dollars and cents and they didn't look at, Oh, it's wrestling competition. Only those people in the wrestling business right. were looking at it, at it as competition to the TBS ad sales team. It's another ad. Let's talk about, um, the tournament, because this is the first and only time we ever see a tournament at WrestleMania. And we saw another tournament for the world title, like 10 years later, survivor series 98, but this is the only time at WrestleMania. And there's always been this talk that we hear that happens at Titan where people say that Vince has almost like a litmus test of is the guy a star or not. And so one of the things we've heard is, you know, does he stand out at an airport? Are people paying attention at an airport? Meaning, is he a big guy? Does he have an intimidating presence or look? But the other thing we hear is, do I see them on a WrestleMania poster? Is that a Vinceism about the WrestleMania poster? Well, I don't know about a WrestleMania poster, but is do I see him in the main event at WrestleMania? Yeah. Well, the reason I bring this up is you go back in history and you look at some of the WrestleMania posters. The very first WrestleMania poster is Hulk Hogan and Mr. T, which is obviously what he thinks. And he's right. Are the two most marketable pieces of his company that he can put a presentation for WrestleMania two it's Bundy and Hogan WrestleMania three it's Andre and Hogan WrestleMania four sort of all over the place. It's got lots of different folks, but it is Andre and Hogan WrestleMania five Hogan and Savage WrestleMania six. You see what I mean? But it feels like sometimes when Vince isn't all that confident that he has it right, whatever it is, whatever the shot is, 
he sort of just throws a bunch of people on there. You look at like WrestleMania nine or WrestleMania 10, he just throws a bunch of dudes on there, but then you get to like WrestleMania 14 and it's Austin and it's Michaels and it's Tyson. He knows this is the draw. Was there some strategy or thinking about the WrestleMania poster? And we've got to put our best shot there. And if you're not really sure what it is, fuck it, throw a bunch of stuff on there and maybe somebody will gravitate to a part of it. Well, I don't know that he ever put a bunch of people on there um, prior to Austin and and uh, and Tyson and Sean and all that stuff because there there became a point where Vince felt that WrestleMania itself, the name and the logo, was enough of a draw, and that it didn't have to necessarily be attraction driven for that. You know what I mean for that one match. And it became an event and it was all about the event. It was all about the star power. So at this event, you're going to get all of the best of the WWE. It was, I I don't know that that was ever, um, well, no, these guys don't draw. So I'm going to throw a bunch of shit on there. No, it was more of the event and the brand WWE and the brand WrestleMania he felt was enough to draw and that that's what should be promoted. I'm just saying, like, if you go look at the different posters, you know, there was a few that were released for like nine, but on one version, there's seven dudes and you know, you get to like this year's WrestleMania or even like WrestleMania 30 and there's, there's like 10 dudes on it. Okay. Yeah. And again, that goes back to the, to the brand WrestleMania and a lot of star power. There's a lot of different versions. You mentioned WrestleMania nine. There's one big poster of Brett and Yoko that was, you know, that was one big poster. I'm sure there's other posters of a lot of different guys on it featuring Hulk because Hulk was a big name that he wanted to have in there. So I think that it was, that wasn't something of, well, I don't have confidence in these guys, different posters for different publications for different, for different reasons. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the tournament bracket. Um, this is something folks have wanted to know a lot about, and this is going to come directly from the observer. The big question is why the sudden unannounced bracketing change. Was it that the first bracket was simply set up with so little thought that they didn't realize that they set up a boring Deviasi versus Morocco or savage versus rude final. I find it hard to believe that it wasn't that well thought in advance of what the bracketing would be. So why the change? Obviously something in the original scenario had gone afoul, but what is that? The thought that DiBiase can't draw as champion. If indeed that was the original plan for the summer, does that mean Savage will win and then lose to DiBiase in July? Your guess is as good as mine right now. And of course, what we're talking about is on TV, right after the tournament was announced, we see a bracket for the tournament, but that's different than what actually winds up taking place at WrestleMania in the original version. We had the Jake Roberts, Rick rude winner facing off against the Don Morocco, Dino Bravo winner and the winner of Ricky steamboat, Greg Valentine would take on the winner of Randy Savage, Butch Reed, which was kept the same. The victor of bam, bam, Bigelow, one man gang would then battle Ted DiBiase and Jim Duggan. So set the record straight here. One of the things people want to know the most, why was the bracket changed? Vince changed his mind. The original plan was to put it on DiBiase? No. So 
the original finale. The, the uh, again, you know, it, it's funny reading what you just said there. It's like, well, you would have had this. So is Meltzer saying that he saw brackets that went all the way through to the end with Rude versus Savage? No. Okay. So, but that's what he said in there. Well, so, I mean, I, th- I think it is sort of logical that you could just sort of figure you out. You can guess. Yeah. No, you can guess. It's not logical. You can guess. And I don't think that Vince, when those brackets were put up there that anybody looked at the brackets per se is how it was going to line up from here's what the matches are to television. And I think that was just a mistake more than anything Vince had in his head where it was going to go and how it was going to end up, how it was presented on television was probably just a mistake of somebody mixing up brackets. No conspiracy theory. No, uh, well, Ted DiBiase is not going to draw. Well, this will be a boring match. None of that took place. It was, you know, the creative at that time came from Vince. And I don't think that there was that much detail put into it to look at it. And it may have been done wrong initially on television. We're going to throw both of the brackets up on uh, our Instagram. So if you've never seen these, check them out. But you'll see the original TV graphic and and the way it would have shaken out is you would have had Randy Savage in theory taking on, uh, Jim Duggan, not Jim Duggan, but, um, Ted DiBiase in like the semifinals, as opposed to the finale. So on the other side, it would have in theory lined up Ricky steamboat or Rick rude against Hulk Hogan. Now we know that's going to be a DQ and somebody's going to get a buy, but those wind up switching places. So there was no consideration when this bracket was just accidentally released and it was a typo, the rumor and innuendo that the million dollar man was going to become the world champion here. That was never the plan as far as you know. No. And there was never any plan for there to be like a Hulk, Rick rude or macho man, Rick rude main event in the tournament finale, right? No. Okay. So what we saw was always somebody, the, that's just somebody guessing what we saw was always the plan. What you saw at the end of the night was always the plan. Yes. Well, I don't know if the, some of the matches within the tournament changed, and I believe they did, but the end result was always going to be the end result. Um, but the whole idea, you know, we've talked about this a lot. The whole honky tonk man refused to drop the intercontinental title. So blah to macho man. So therefore yada, 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 that's all rumored innuendo. That part of yes, that's rumored innuendo. I also want to talk about the, uh, the falling out of Bruno San Martino and he'd been doing commentary with you guys for quite a while. And then all of a sudden he gets an offer to go do a 900 number from a third party company and he's out and he starts making appearances in the mainstream on talk shows and radio shows and things of that sort that aren't exactly positive for the WWF. So the blooms off the rose and you guys actually try to get them, uh, to stop referring to him as the living legend. And you go so so far as to use some lawyers here to make sure that he doesn't call himself the living legend. What happened? How long had this beef been brewing with Vince McMahon and Bruno San Martino at this point? I think that there was always, um, I don't know that Vince and Bruno were ever, you know, best buddies or anything like that. I think that stemmed from the relationship of Bruno with Vince's father and Vince's father taking the championship off of Bruno many years before that speculation on my part. 
Um, I worked with Bruno. I worked with Bruno uh, up to this time doing voiceovers. Bruno was always very, very nice to me. Really nice man. But Bruno was set in his ways, and Bruno was very old school. And the only reason that Bruno was doing what he was doing was for his son David. And he wanted his son David to have an opportunity and to be working for the company. Bruno left when his when David got into a fight at a house show, and David was fired. So when David was fired, Bruno left. That's it. Bruno, Bruno and, and Vince weren't, you know, <laughs> I don't know that they ever saw eye to eye uh, back in the day. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't adversarial, but the time here for Bruno to leave was Bruno's son wasn't working anymore. His son was let go. I'm gone. Uh, there's some speculation about the tournament that we need to get to before we actually cover the show. And I, I've, I've looked forward to hitting you with this more than anything else we're going to talk about. It comes from the observer. Uh, but I got this question from a thousand people online. A second clue is that the latest issue of the WWF magazine, which has been out for two weeks now, this was published on March 21st, by the way, there's a photo caption showing Elizabeth shopping and the caption refers to her as Elizabeth manager of the world wrestling federation champion, Randy macho man, savage. Is this a red herring? Is this a misprint? Is it bad proofreading? Uh, is this a clue at Wendy's Wednesday's TV tapings? One reader swore to me. He looked through the curtain and saw savage doing an interview, carrying the title belt <laughs> so much for the honor of kayfabing the public. I included that last part just for you. However, this magazine was out. It was published. It was printed. You guys did it. And it sort of became common knowledge after that. The word was out that Macho Man was going to become the world champion. So going into the event, some of the mystery and intrigue and whatever, as a wrestling fan, may have been removed because you knew Macho Man was going to win. How, uh, who got in trouble for this? How the fuck does it happen? When did you guys hear about it? What do you remember hearing about your own company printing a spoiler ahead of time? Well, Ed Rashidi is the one who got in trouble for it and and got reprimanded for it. He was the editor of the magazine and, um, you know, what they failed to point out, it flies into the face of the rumored innuendo that, uh, in February, that honky tonk man refused to do a job to Randy Savage. So we switch since this magazine went into production back in January. So, okay. Conspiracy theorists explain that one is a mistake. It was a mistake that somebody in the, uh, magazine did and nobody caught it. And because of this mistake, unfortunately I had to proofread the friggin' magazine going forward <laughs> after it for somebody from the wrestling side to read it because it was people that were in publications and not always in tune to what they were doing. And they had information that they thought, well, the, the, the air date or the, whatever the release date, this comes out two weeks after, but subscribers and other people got it. The printer got it and it was out there. Um, shit fucks up. Sometimes people make mistakes. Now on the second part there, uh, no, no, the, no, let's, I no, just, no, I, no, we're going to the second part now. 
of, of, of the report, and this is how Meltzer operates, a report that someone, a reader, saw Savage, th peeked through a curtain and saw Savage doing an interview with the championship belt two weeks before WrestleMania. 100% complete, unadulterated bullshit. And the fact that he would report it is bullshit. But Okay, let's go. We didn't hang on, hang on, hang on. We did not do any interviews with Randy Savage with the championship belt until the night before and the day of and the day after WrestleMania. None. I did them. There were none done beforehand, especially two weeks beforehand. And in addition to that, when they talk about, you know, oh, well, the different things, we used to send different guys out with belts and different guys out without belts just to see what the dirt sheets would write. And nine times out of 10, they would report it that, oh, we figured this out. The third hour of taping, uh, so-and-so was there, so they won't be winning. How do you know what the third hour was? We did shit out of order all the time. You have no fucking idea. So it's summation. It's lies. It's, it's, it's assuming. This takes us to why we're here. WrestleMania four, the attendance is 19,199 fans. Our hosts of course are gorilla monsoon and Jesse, the body Ventura. Meltzer was critical of their work here. He felt like Jesse wasn't really as well prepared as he had been in prior shows. He didn't have lots of one-liners. And Gorilla, he felt like, was a little monotone here compared to some of the prior performances. How would you rate Gorilla and Jesse here for WrestleMania 4? I thought they were fine. I thought that it was a long show. <laughs> I think that took the wind out of a lot of people's sails. In addition to that, because of the tournament concept, you didn't have a whole lot of personal issues and stories to tell. So that, that takes away from the commentary. It wasn't great. It wasn't bad. It was okay. Um, do you know if Jesse and Donald had any interaction here? How did they get along? They're both, you know, politicians or have been. Oh, they got along great. But at this time, neither one of them was a politician and they were just two contemporaries, but they got along great. Donald, you know, walked around and introduced himself to everybody and, had his entourage around him, but he was very personable and said hello to everybody. He was cool as shit. Um, Gladys Knight sings America the Beautiful. How do these celebrity singings of America the Beautiful come to be? You know, Vince always liked for America the Beautiful, he always liked a classic uh, great vocalist. Uh, Gladys Knight was a great vocalist. Ed Cohen, who booked the buildings for us also booked the celebrity talent for us. And Ed had relationships with different agents and people in Hollywood. And the funny part about it was, is Ed always used to say, he goes, it's my name. It's Ed Cohen. Watch this. And Ed would just randomly go through, uh, for example, a Hollywood trade and call somebody a big name or a big agent or somebody go, Hey, yeah, this is Ed Cohen for, uh, Barry Dudinsky or whoever the hell. And they go, hold on, please. It was just the way Ed carried himself. He carried himself as if, yeah, no, it's Ed Cohen. And it's Ed Cohen. Hold on. I'll get, put you right through, sir. But, uh, Ed, Ed booked all that stuff. Why America, the beautiful and not the star spangled banner. Cause Vince likes America, the beautiful. Do you know why though? That's what I'm asking. 
thinks that uh, the Star Spangled Banner, everybody else does that, we're going to be different. I know you'd say that. Uh, so before we get started, the rumor and innuendo is that the Jumping Bomb Angels were supposed to wrestle the Glamour Girls at WrestleMania 4, but it never happened. Is that true? I don't remember if they were a part of the card or not. I know it didn't happen. Why did it I don't happen? know if they were ever a part of the card or not. No. Do you know why the jumping bomb angels were sort of out of here? No. Okay. The first match is a 20 man battle Royal. It's the first time we see a battle Royal to open WrestleMania. Of course we saw a battle Royal at WrestleMania two that had NFL players and Andre, the giant won that one. What was the thinking in opening WrestleMania with a battle Royal? Just get a lot of stars on screen quickly. There exactly. And there were a lot of tag teams and there were a lot of people that were decent names that were not a part of the tournament. And you could only have so many people in the tournament rather than add more matches. Cause we already had too many anyway, uh, put them all in one match in a battle Royal. Something else sort of different about this is everybody gets in the ring and then Finkel announces each one, one by one. And then they all come to the center and sort of wave sort of a weird deal in hindsight. Don't you think? Very weird. And that's one of the things that would not happen today because it would be rehearsed and they would say, this isn't working. God damn it. Um, just get them in the ring and start the match. But it happened. Uh, Bob Euchre joins, um, gorilla and Jesse for commentary and Euchre was at WrestleMania three as well. How did his relationship with the WWF come to be? Bob Euchre and Dick Ebersol were really good friends and Dick Ebersol had a great deal of admiration for Bob Euchre. Bob enjoyed the business and enjoyed doing it. He had a lot of fun at WrestleMania three. So we thought about Vince liked him. He said, God, let's use Euchre again. Bob got it. And he was fun to be around and the talent liked him. So Vince wanted to bring him back. Um, on his appearance here, he says, talking about Bob Euchre pronouns, pal. Vince called him and asked him to participate. And to those of us watching at home, Vince was just a commentator on TV. Was there any reaction to Bob saying that on TV? Cause if you know what you're, what you're talking about, you know, that, you know, he's the owner. Why the hell did he say that? God damn it. Uh, <laughs> some things just slip on by any good, uh, Bob Euchre stories that you can share with us. He's in the WWE hall of fame. Cindy Lauper's not. The only time that I ever got to spend with Euchre was on this day. And Bob was just a, a one line, you know, kind of like Rodney Dangerfield comedian spouting them off one after another. But at the same time, when it came time for the camera to be on, it was almost like he became apprehensive a little bit, but a funny, funny class act, uh, super, super nice guy. Um, I'm going to run through the guys who are in this battle Royal. I'm going to list them all one by one. And I need you to, um, we'll do word association with each one. So you can make, you know, give us a word, a sentence or a sound for each. You ready? Okay. George, the animal steel. Nice. Harley race. King. Hillbilly Jim. Howdy, y'all. Boris Zukov. Big Jim. Nikolai Volkov. 
The junkyard dog. Badass. Ron Bass. Cowboy. Ken Patera. <laughs> Stud. Raymond Rougeau. Another badass. Boy, this is interesting. Jacques Rougeau. Not a badass. Sam Houston. Oh, boy. Misunderstood. Bad News Brown. Legit fucking badass. He's another one. You know, Bad News Brown was uh, a judo, judo champ. You know, every now and again, we're allowed to be funny on here. Yeah, well. I mean, thank you. We had a story about Andre taking a shit on bad news Brown in the archives. And I said, bad news Brown. And you had nothing just, he's legit bad. Well, fuck. We know that Bruce we're here and we're trying to, I need to shit. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Jim Brunzel jumping, uh, B Brian Blair. No, no B Brian Blair. Maybe I thought to be humble, uh, Brian Blair with fucking the ass. See, <laughs> took a while, but we're here. <laughs> See, isn't this more enjoyable now? Holy shit! Oh fuck me! Uh, Danny Davis. One, two, three. Sika, the father of Roman Reigns. <laughs> Jim Powers, uh, Paul Roma, jumping. Jim Neidhart. Anvil. No. What do you want from Jim Neidhart? Help uh, me. Uh, big bastard, uh, fucking uh, rhino motherfucker. God damn it. Uh, uh, See, uh, you got to take the pill. Yeah, sometimes you got to help me here. You know, it's like it's pill time almost. <laughs> Bret Hart. Uh, Montreal, I'm a Canadian hero, uh, bastard. Uh, so still never actually got in the ring. He stood outside the entire match and eventually just fucking walked to the back. Is this not just stealing money directly from the company? <laughs> nice. Mine. Yeah. Um, of course, Brown eliminates Brett to win the match. Meltzer gives it a half a star. Uh, Brett would come back into the ring and drop kick Brown from behind out of the ring and then destroy the seven foot trophy. And this starts the Hart Foundation's baby face turn. And Brett and Bad News would have a series of matches after this, mostly on house shows. And Bad News had only been in the WWF since like February of 88. So he's only a month and change in here and already getting a bit of a mega push by winning this. He had previously wrestled, of course, in Stampede and New Japan, and he was in the WWF back in 78, 79. Uh, why was Vince so inclined to, to push bad news so early here? Just because he was new to the company? He was new to the company. It was also a double-edged sword. We were looking to do something with bad news, and Vince was also looking to do something with Brett as a single. The fact that Brett and bad news had history in Calgary and bad news had come recommended by Brett Vince felt that they would have great matches and, and would be comfortable with one another and a good way to get both guys over in one fell swoop. Um, this trophy is something that wrestling fans still talk about today. Do you remember where you guys got this trophy? 
Yeah. Oh yeah. That was over at trophies R us. What happened to the trophy? Obviously we know in wrestling now, if you see a trophy, they're going to get fucking destroyed. Right. I think it made the trash before we were saving shit. Um, hypothetically, if you had to ballpark a figure, what do you think that would have been worth? Seven bucks. It's a piece of shit. I'm saying even today, somebody would be all about that. I'm sure they would. Yeah. But it's, it was, it was just a piece of shit. Um, let's talk about turning Brett and the heart foundation baby face. Brett says that Vince called him and said that he couldn't understand it, but he was getting more fan mail for him than any other wrestler in the company. And he says something like, I don't know if it's that greasy hair or what. So I'm turning you baby face. You get even more mail than Hogan. So I'm going to split up the foundation and I'm going to give you the big push you deserve for so long. That shit sound legit to you. I mean, listen, I like Bret Hart and I know everybody listening to the show thinks me and you hate Bret Hart, but I don't I like Bret Hart. I, I was a little kid going to house shows and I got the Bret Hart glasses. Like I'm a Bret guy, but the idea that here in 88, he's getting more fan mail than Hulk Hogan. Fucking please. Yeah, I have no idea if that conversation actually ever took place. I do know of the conversations of Vince talking about that he felt Brett Neidhart would be better off in singles, and he saw Brett as a babyface. That's that's the the word I got, you know, way back then. I, I had never heard of him getting more fan mail than anybody else in the company, more than Hulk Hogan. I do know that Vince felt that Brett was a babyface and wanted to give him an opportunity to be a single. Uh, next up is our first world title tournament match. It's Ted DiBiase and Jim Duggan. And these guys were Mid-South superstars not too long prior to this, but neither one of them are really their old selves here. Or at least they're not working like they were. Uh, Howard Finkel is going to introduce Robin Leach at this point, who comes to the ring, and he reads a proclamation that the tournament shall begin and some of our younger fans may not know this, but Robin Leach was actually the host of the lifestyles of rich and famous, which was a really, really big deal, uh, for television back in the day. And I think you guys had like a, a working relationship with them where you did a skit with Ted DiBiase and Hulk Hogan and Mr. Perfect and lots of WWF guys, I think were on the lifestyles of rich and famous, but what they may not know is where most of that stuff was actually shot, smarting everybody up. Well, the, the DiBiase stuff was shot at Vince's house. And that was some, one of the most classic lifestyles of the rich and famous ever. And that's with, with Vince's fur coat and, and Vince's Clinet and the whole nine yards and Vince's dog eating the caviar and drinking the champagne. And he sat there at perfect attention. And when they said, okay, we got it cut. The dog threw up, but the dog held it all the way through the take. He ate caviar on cue and drank the champagne on cue, which was completely not planned. And then threw up after, uh, we stopped rolling tape working dog. So tell me this, how does this relationship with lifestyles of the rich and famous come to be? Did somebody know Robin or the production company or what? Well, through the, through this appearance, uh, his agent, we booked Robin for this. I met Robin in Houston. Robin flew into Houston was coming well he was coming through doing an appearance i flew into houston to do the vignettes with robin and the wwf championship where he would present it to the winner and what have you 
we kind of had a rapport. Super, super just nice guy. He, one of the boys. Um, a, a, a gimmick and a half. Like to drink, like to have a good time. Just a really, really fun guy. So he said, you know, hey, we should do something with uh, some of your wrestlers. I said, well, we got the million dollar man. Who better? You know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. So Robin's people got in touch with our people and we started working together. But uh, that stemmed from Robin working with us on this promotion. And he was impressed by the, the production. He was impressed by the guys. And he was just one of the boys. He's just really a down to earth <laughs> in spite of everything you see with the lifestyles of the rich and famous, really a down to earth, uh, pretty cool guy. Let's talk about the match. DiBiase comes out with Andre and Virgil and DiBiase and Duggan had worked together a lot in mid South, some really famous matches. This is not one of those. Uh, this one only goes five minutes and three seconds. Um, the finish is Duggan goes for a body slam to set up the three point stance, but Andre hooks the leg. Duggan goes after Andre, which allows DiBiase to give a knee to the back and then a fist drop for the win. A star in three quarters. Meltzer thought that DiBiase didn't work like the old DiBiase, and specifically Duggan, he felt like may have been dealing with an injury at this time because he had slowed way, way down. What'd you think of this match? Average at best, you know, unfortunately I didn't think that a whole lot of these matches were good with the exception of the last match with, uh, Savage and DiBiase, they were going through motions next up. That's how I felt. We see uh, mean gene talk to Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. You know, one day he's going to kick your ass. I ain't scared of shit. What's he going to do? All right, may kick your ass and shave your beard. Well, he can't even, he can't help me. I don't even have any weed for him to carry. So I'm not concerned. So let's talk about his upcoming intercontinental championship match here with Mean Gene. Uh, Gene opens the interview by looking at Brutus's tights and he says something like, What a package. And then asks him where he gets his tights. And in my head, Gene was doing that to try to get Brutus to crack up, but that could just be me. Um, the next match is another round one match with Dino Bravo with Frenchie Martin against Don Morocco and superstar Billy Graham. The finish sees Morocco goes for the uh, a second flying forearm, but Bravo pulls the referee in front of him, taking him out. And then Bravo hits a side suplex and goes for the cover, but the referee calls for the DQ at four minutes and 56 seconds. And then Morocco wins by DQ and advances in the tournament. Meltzer only gives it half a star. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Frenchie Martin on the show. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. What can you tell us about Frenchie Martin? Frenchie Martin from Montreal, uh, Quebec, Canada, French Canadian. He, he worked and actually drew some money in Puerto Rico was a hell of a hand. And Frenchie was getting up in years and doing the managerial gig here. But Frenchie Martin, I credit with teaching me how to smoke dope on an airplane, on a commercial airplane. So that would be Frenchie Martin's contribution to the wrestling business in my eyes of, of what I learned from Frenchie. Great guy, a lot of fun. And Frenchie was another one of those that could have conversations with Pat Patterson without ever saying a legible word. Oh my gosh. 
I mean, who's making the matchmaking here? I mean, Dino Bravo, Don Morocco. This feels like something somebody just wrote down with no real idea of, is this going to be worth a fuck or not? Two huge names. Uh, Vince, you know, goddamn, you go huge. Morocco was a huge name back in the WWF drew big money. And Vince always, Vince had a habit of, of remembering guys back when, right. And that's what he wanted to see. And sometimes he would have to take his glasses off to realize what was in front of him at the time. He loves superstar. Billy Graham was a big fan of superstar. So he saw superstar in his heyday, a superstar, Billy Graham, and wanted to recreate that so bad. He saw Don Morocco as the magnificent Morocco. And then he wanted to make him, you know, Morocco was the original rock. It just, sometimes man, it, this match was slow. Superstar Billy Graham came back to the company in like mid 87 and he was having some health problems. So in storyline, he was retired by the one man gang who splashed him on the floor and Morocco, who had previously been a heel came out to his aid and Graham became his manager, which effectively turned Morocco babyface. Did you prefer Morocco as a heel or a baby? I preferred Morocco as a heel. I preferred Morocco as the beach bum ass kicking heel. I don't think that Don was. He Don was a natural heel. Yes, <laughs> the best I can say. Sort of like and Don, t- sort of like baby, huh? Sort of like Tully Blanchard to me. He just comes yes. off as a heel. Yes, and Don was great. He was a great heel and trying to be a baby face and hey brother and and the beach bum baby face to me just never really clicked or worked. Um, what's the steroid policy here? I hate to ask, but I mean, God, we had damn. no steroid policy. <laughs> yeah. I think it, this time, I think God, the policy, steroids were probably still legal. The policy was do more. I mean, holy no, shit. There's no policy. People were going to their doctors and getting shit. I'm sure. Well, no doubt. I mean, you've got three guys out here who are as big as a house and you know, Billy Graham's obviously a decorated WWF champion. He beat Bruno and then Bob beat him the next year in 77 and 78, but he always had or seemingly always had a rocky relationship with Vince and company over the years. A couple of years after this, he's going to be on Donahue trying to just do everything he can to fuck with Vince. What was their relationship like? How would you categorize it? At this time, it was great. You know, it was lovey dovey and let's find something for superstar to do and make him a commentator, find something for Billy to do, make him a manager. Let's, let's use him on all of the cable shows, come up with something for superstar to do because superstar was in need of money and he was hurting. He'd had the hip surgery, thought he could come back, came back, not in shape and certainly not able to go every night in the ring. So Vince out of his friendship with superstar and kind of his admiration for superstar all those years wanted to make something happen for him. Well, let's, uh, let's move along here. Next up. We've got Bob Uecker talking to the intercontinental champion, honky tonk man and the Colonel Jimmy Hart. Uh, the next match is another first round match. We got Ricky steamboat and Greg, the hammer Valentine and steamboat brings his son, Richie to the ring with him. And, uh, Richie actually wound up becoming a wrestler like 20 years later, I think in 2008. Um, fortunately though, his career was cut short by injuries. 
this is something that Ricky did in the NWA a year later as well, too. How did he feel about Ricky bringing his son to the ring? Was this, you know, white meat, baby face one Oh one. It was something that Ricky really wanted to do. And Vince let him do it. It was just something Rick felt really strongly about, wanted to, to bring Ricky out there and Vince succumbed. And you hated it and Vince hated it, but y'all just let him do it. I did hate it. I believe Vince hated it, but sometimes you let people do, do things to show them after the fact why that may not have been a good idea. Was that his wife trying to get in his ear that he needed to take him out there? I really don't know. I've, I've heard that. I've heard that version before, but I, I don't know. I know Ricky is the one who brought it to Vince. Did Ricky ever present or, you know, pitch his wife being a part of the package? At one time, I do believe that Ricky wanted Bonnie to be a part of the package and, and Vince didn't want to have anything to do with it, especially as a baby face. Didn't feel that it would help at all. And explain why. I mean, I know the answer, but for, uh, some of our younger listeners may not know the old adage about baby faces. Well, for for a baby face in a female, the only one that it worked for, you know, going back then was was Randy, and that was after after this. But prior to that, it just if you had a good looking girl with you, it a baby face you want to be available. So you want the girl you want the girls to want them, and you want the guys to admire them. Uh, a guy coming out with his wife, it doesn't present the, you know, that baby face, single matinee idol feeling. It presents an old married guy. Kevin Nash used to, used to describe it. Do you remember what Kevin Nash would say? What'd Kevin say? He would say something like, um, it needs to be a guy that the girls want to fuck and the guys want to be right. And you know, if, if, if the guy has a, a hotter girl than you, then he's a heel, you know? And so the idea is if you're a baby face, if you're a heel, then yeah, you put a hot chick with him and then he's super hateable. But if he's a baby face, maybe you don't. And if you're, if you're trying to appeal to the female audience, you want to make him available. Like you said, but the other, the other part of that was, was Ricky wanted it to be his wife. Yeah. And that just kills any of those, any of those analogies. So do you think that's because and this is just, you know, me asking, do you think it's because Bonnie wanted to be a star and Bonnie was pressuring him to do that? Or do you think he just wanted to be able to travel with his wife so he could get some of that good, good? I think it was Bonnie putting the pressure on him. I think everybody thinks that. So one of my favorite things about this show that's sort of underrated is when Ricky's coming down the steps with this kid, his son, Richie. Uh, Ventura is doing what he's supposed to do. He's trying to get heat, but he's trying to get heat on the baby. <laughs> he says that baby has ah, chubby cheeks, little than- fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that fat little fuck. God damn. <laughs> what are they feeding that kid? I tell you, gorilla. Hell, he's fatter than you. Oh no. Yeah, he does. He says something like the the baby has cheeks fatter than Bundy and. I didn't catch that as a kid, of course, but now as I'm watching it back, I'm like, oh. holy shit, how underrated is Jesse Ventura? Oh, Jesus Christ. A minute ago, you said they sucked. No, I didn't say that. I said Ventura, I mean, not Ventura, Meltzer said that yeah. he felt like it wasn't their best performance. But as you said, the show's 19 fucking hours. It's not supposed to be. It, it, it feels like it was 24 hours. Oh, my God. It was slow that night. 
Uh, the finish saw a cross body by steamboat, but it's rolled through by Valentine who grabs a handful of tights and gets the pin to advance in the tournament two and a quarter stars. Um, chat me up here. A lot of folks assumed when they see this bracket, we're going to get savage steamboat two here in the tournament, but we don't see it. What's the thinking and holding off here? You got two baby faces. Why would you ever do that? If you're trying to build the baby face, Randy Savage is the new champion to go against a, a pure white meat baby face in Ricky steamboat. It's going to make the audience choose and you don't want to do that. That would have been death. Not good for either guy. Well, but you guys teased that you were going to go with macho man and Ricky steamboat, even in the promos leading up to WrestleMania, where uh, I think steamboat said something like he hopes Randy Savage wins his first round match so he can get a rematch rematch from last year's classic confrontation. So you sort of tease that it's going to happen, but then it doesn't. And then not too terribly long after this, uh, Rick winds up leaving the WWF after WrestleMania and he goes to the NWA and then actually beats Ric Flair for the world title at the beginning of the next year. And they have three legendary matches in 89 that people still talk about to this day. Why was this the beginning of the end for Ricky Steamboat here? Well, uh, first of all, I think if Vince would have heard Ricky tease that he would have done it all over again. And I doubt that that was something that Vince endorsed. It was probably something that the Fink had produced in a segment that just kind of slipped by and people thought, Oh God, that'd be cool. But never was going to be the intention and Vince wouldn't do that because again, you got two baby faces going in there, splitting that audience. Ricky wanted time off. Ricky wanted to spend time off with his kid. Didn't want to work the schedule and Vince and Ricky just reached an impasse where it was like, all right, you know, we can move on and you can go do your thing. So Ricky left. Um, Let's talk about Greg Valentine briefly here, because I think Valentine's doing something kind of cool that maybe people miss at the very first WrestleMania. He defended the intercontinental title against junkyard dog at WrestleMania two. He defended the tag titles against the British bulldogs and here at four, he's a part of a tournament for the world title. So in the first four years, he manages to compete for all the titles in the WWF, which is kind of fun. Next up, we've got, uh, mean Jean doing an interview with the British Bulldogs and Coco beware. And, uh, I find it interesting that out of these three guys, only Coco is in the hall of fame. Gene Oakland's in the hall of fame. I was talking about the wrestlers, but I think it's fair to say we get questions a lot of times about why aren't the British Bulldogs in the hall of fame? It's not popular to say, but one of the things that Vince probably considers is the way a guy passes away and whether or not there would be a wheelchair on stage. Would that be fair to say? You know, I really don't know what it is, but I do think that from the way that the, uh, dynamite kid left and some of the things that dynamite said wasn't, you know, all that favorable to the company. So I don't know that they would frown on that, but bulldog, I think is somebody that's made a lot of positive contributions to the business. Didn't, you know, his passing was not good. And, and unfortunately a lot of bad circumstances surrounding it. But I do think that, uh, Davey boy had a hall of fame career. Just a prediction. Um, one day when the sad news comes, uh, I think they'll go in the next year. 
Uh, next match is another first round match. This time we've got Randy Savage taking on Butch Reed. And surprisingly, Jive Soul Bro is not on the network. We haven't done very many impressions on the show so far, Bruce. Hypothetically, how would Jim Cornette sing Jive Soul Bro? Just Jive Soul Bro, Jive Soul Bro, and you always get something on the side. That's what I am. I'm a Jive Soul Bro, motherfucker. Uh, the finish saw Reed go to the top rope, but he starts talking to Liz. So Savage slams him off the top and then comes off with a flying elbow, picks up the pin four minutes and nine seconds in. So Savage advances to the next round of the tournament. Meltzer gave it one star and Butch Reed leaves the WWF. Not too terribly long after this. Um, what happened with Butch? I mean, we know he was over in Florida, right? Butch Reed was definitely over in Florida. You know, Butch was. A lot of times what happens to guys is they, they become unhappy and they let everybody know that they're unhappy and they mope around and just can be their own worst enemy. And in my opinion, I think that's what happened to Butch. I think Butch worked himself into a shoot by if he lets everybody know that he's unhappy, that they'll, he'll get something more. And it got to the point, I think, where Vince is like, Butch, if you're unhappy then maybe we need to part ways. And Vince reaches that point a lot of times when if you tell him enough times that, well, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. He's like, well, you're not going to do that here. And if that's what you should be doing, go somewhere else and do it. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the rumor and innuendo with Butch, because allegedly he was supposed to beat Ricky Steamboat for the intercontinental title, but he no showed that night. And according to the rumor and innuendo, Vince and Hogan are talking in the back about what to do. And when honky walks by Hulk says something like, what about him? And they decide to give honky the title. I know you're going to shit all over this rumor and innuendo, but is there any truth to the idea that Butch was supposed to be the guy who had an IC run here, but a misstep and no showing cost him that opportunity. Butch Reed was somebody that was definitely talked about for an intercontinental run. However, I believe that this story is urban legend. Um, next up, Bobby Uecker interviews Bobby Heenan and the Islanders. And then there's another, uh, round one match with one man gang and bam, bam, Bigelow. Uh, it's the super heavyweights here and the finish sees Bigelow hit the ropes, but then slick pulls the top rope and that sends Bigelow to the floor. So gang fights him while he's on the apron and the ref keeps counting Bigelow, eventually counting him out at two minutes and 59 seconds. It gets a dud rating from Dave Meltzer. It is kind of a weird finish where the ref is counting him out, even though he's on the apron. Um, what'd you think of the finish? And was this really just, you guys are trying to work around bam, bam. I think he had a hamstring injury at the time. I think bam, bam was injured at the time because these are two big guys and the original booking of the match I'm sure is both bam, bam and one man gang were two big working sons, of bitches. Uh, they could go. And the thought was that you have this, this big man match to tear the house down. But I think Bammer was hurt from an injury leg, knee, whatever it was and couldn't go. But the finish was what the finish was. I mean, it was, it was a count out, but it was unfortunately a case of two big guys not being able to do a whole lot due to injury. 
uh, one man gang, uh, would then advance to the next round to take on Randy Savage. But let's talk about Bam Bam Bigelow. Bam Bam had come out in years later, of course, prior to his death and said that, uh, Vince told him he was going to win the tournament. Do you remember ever hearing there being some sort of plan for Bam Bam to get any sort of significant push or is this sour grapes? Well, no, there was always planned. Bam Bam got a hell of a push coming in and, and worked on top right from the very beginning. I can absolutely hear Vince saying, God damn, Bam Bam, I can see you as the WWF champion someday for Vince to promise Bam Bam, you're going to win the tournament. I don't think that that ever happened. Um, that may have been wishful thinking and that might have been combining different conversations of Vince saying, I could see you as champion one day and we're going to have a tournament to I'm winning the tournament, <laughs> but I don't think that I highly doubt that happened. Next up, we get uh, Mean Gene interviewing Hulk, and he promises to slam Andre into the ground and says it's going to cause a fault line to open, sending uh, Atlantic City into the ocean. And he says when Donald Trump hangs off the Trump Plaza with one arm and holds his family with the other as they sink to the bottom of the sea, thank God Donald Trump is a Hulkamaniac. He'll know to let go of his material possessions and hang on to the wife and kids and dog paddle with his life all the way to safety. Um, <laughs> this and is if Donald starts to run out of gas, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm doing warrior there for a minute. <laughs> and if Donald starts to run out of gas, hold on to the largest back in the world and Hulk Brother. will dog paddle them all to safety. You know, people have made fun of the warrior for the silly promos, but man, this is some out there shit. How much cocaine is Hulk Hogan on here? I don't think he's on any cocaine here. And the at least you can understand Hulk's promos, and he's not speaking. At least you can actually understand this, and, and Hulk made sense because, by God, if there truly was a fault line and it opened up in Atlantic City, I'd jump on that gigantic largest back in the world. Just saying. Can we get you to recreate? that Hulk Hogan promo on Facebook live tomorrow morning or on, on, uh, the morning deuce on Facebook tomorrow morning. Maybe. Okay. Hypothetically facebook.com <laughs> forward slash something to wrestle. Um, we see Donald signing his autograph in a program for a young fan right after this. And the next match is the final round one match. It's Jake Roberts and Rick rude. We've done shows on both of these guys available in the archives at youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. And this match took place about a month before the angle with Jake's wife, Cheryl. Was this match just to sort of test how they work together before going into that angle? Or was that already the plan at this point? I believe that there was always that plan for them to work together. And this was a happy accident. The match goes 15 minutes, a time limit draw, which eliminated both men from the tournament. And I think it's fair to say this is the fucking worst match on the card. Uh, the lots of slow stalling old school house show. Put your time in. Well, it's awful. Uh, Meltzer gives it uh, negative two stars. What say you? I'd give it an even star. Of course, Bobby Heenan was ravishing recruits manager. And, uh, he wrote in his book about this. He says 
that during the match, Jake put Rude over the security railing backwards, right in front of Ivanka. And then Jake goes and gets the snake and tells Rude to move and then puts the snake right in Ivanka's face. And she goes backwards in her chair, spilling her glass of wine and her legs are all in the air. And Bobby thinks to himself, oh God, if Vince hears about this, we're in trouble. And then he writes, I looked over at Trump and he winked at me. I think he was glad she got knocked on her ass. Ivanka stood up, dusted herself off and told her bodyguard, you should have shot the fucking snake. Pretty hilarious interaction here. Would Vince have had a problem with the boys sort of having some fun with the Trump family? I think Vince loved it. And anytime that he can kind of fuck with people, nobody got hurt and Ivanka sold. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. Um, how did, um, Vanna white get involved with WrestleMania? The next thing is that we see is Jean and Vanna showing the updated brackets and she was super popular from the wheel of fortune. I think people sort of forget how popular that show was back in 1988 and it's still around today and she's still doing it. But how did that association come to be originally? Ed Cohen, again, working with the agents and, you know, we've talked about him before and I, mistakenly I said Ray Manzarek. Ray Manzarek was with the doors. The manager for Vanna White and Pam Anderson was Ray Manzella. <laughs> so my bad. But Ray was a manager, an agent of Vanna White at the time, and we just lucked into it. And Vanna was an awful lot of fun to work with and she was cool as shit. So she was one of the biggest stars on television at the time. So it was a pretty damn big coup to get her. Uh, and you had a great time spending some, some time with her, right? I had an awesome time at Vanna's uh, house, spending some time with her. We did about 10 vignettes and a lot of changes of clothes and Vanna was a pro all the way. Lots of changes of clothes, huh? Yeah. 10. As a matter of fact, I had 10 weeks of promos. She was the timekeeper. Anything you want to, um, share with us? No. Professional. Uh, great lady. No more rumor and innuendo. Nope. Her brother chip was a hell of a guy too. Oh, was a party around this time. There's a story in the national examiner tabloid that Jesse and Vanna were seeing each other. And it was even mentioned on commentary briefly. Do you remember that story? That was the one in the wrestling observer. What? No. The next match is the ultimate warrior who Dave referred to in the newsletter as the anabolic warrior versus Hercules. And he said at the finish saw, of course, Hercules lock in the full Nelson, but warrior pushes off the top rope with his legs and they do the double pin spot, but warrior gets the shoulder up at two and that gives him the win at four minutes and 38 seconds. Dave gave it minus a half star. Is this the second worst match on the card? <laughs> I got to tell you, there's a lot of matches that tied for worst match. Um, guys, this one doesn't hold up well when you go back and watch it. Uh, and frankly, even watching it then, I just remember looking at events going, God, this is long. Um, not a good match. Not a good match in, in any, any realm. Is this the, I mean, I guess we'll talk about that in a minute, but in my head, this is the worst WrestleMania ever. This would, uh, you know what? It may take the cake. Um, it may win the prize. I don't think anybody, here's, what's fun to sort of look back and see at WrestleMania four. 
would anybody have predicted that two years after this, this fucking guy would be the guy to beat Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania six. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting too. I mean, he'd only been with the company well, less than a year at this time. So this is his first WrestleMania. Um, any good Hercules stories you want to mention here? We've talked about him and chainsaw sages on the steroid trial episode, which is available in the archives at youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. Anything else about Hercules you could share with us? Well, I th- and I may have shared it before, but one of the funniest stories about Hercules back in the olden days, when you would go out at an airport and different places and there would be a bus stop, they had these heaters like space heaters and you had, there was a button that you could push and it says push for heat and the gust of warm air would come out and keep you warm at the bus stop. And in Boston, Hercules is, is there, they're out waiting for the rental car bus to come by and says, Oh, Hey, push for heat. What happens when you push the button? Does a midget come out and trip you? And that just kind of summed up Hercules. We see a video you know, like trippy, you get the hizzy. We see a video showing the Hulk and Andre feud and it includes an interview with Andre and DiBiase where Andre says that he will deliver the world world wrestling federation and, uh, I will enjoy it Hogan. And that takes us to the first match of the quarterfinals, which is Hulk Hogan and Andre the giant. And they're putting the quarterfinals without wrestling in round one, because they were the guys who were in the original title match that sort of created all this controversy. But it looks like at this point, Andre slimmed down quite a bit, even from WrestleMania three, how much, uh, weight had Andre lost here? What was his health? Like, was he in a lot of pain? Catch us up about his condition here at WrestleMania four. Well, Andre was actually looking to, to do more and he had lost weight. So that was relieving some of that pain on his back, but I don't know that Andre was ever really out of pain after that surgery. And it was just a deterioration factor at that point, but he was, he was trying, you know what I mean? And losing some weight, but it was just, it was still tough. It it really and truly was just for him to be out on the road every day and doing the, the demand of travel was just a little too much. The finish saw Virgil distract the referee, which allowed DiBiase to attack with a chair. Hogan throws DiBiase out, and then both guys trade chair shots, drawing the double DQ in five minutes and 22 seconds. Hogan hits Andre with the chair after the bell and then chases DiBiase and Virgil, and then DiBiase throws Virgil to Hogan, and he gets the suplex on the floor. He goes back into the ring, slams Andre, and then poses for the fans. And why does he do that exactly, Bruce? Hogan must pose. And, uh, Jesse brings up how he's posing, even though he was eliminated. And I don't think they announced to the live crowd that he's been eliminated until after the posing is done. Meltzer gave the match uh, a quarter star, but he gave the overall presentation a dud. If you included the posing, because it doesn't posing on a pay-per-view is not nearly as fun as maybe someone posing in person from a live perspective. But as you said, Hogan must pose this match is, is over pretty early in the pay-per-view and Hogan has done here. Or so we think any second guessing at this point on the pacing of the show, where to place this, the double DQ, it's only five minutes, any of that stuff. 
No, not really. You know, you are where you are, and you've got to get that match in. It's the only spot to put it in. You got to get to your finals. So, I mean, where the hell else are you going to put it? Hogan had no problem with this, though. He knew the plan was to go make movies, and he was cool with it. No, that doesn't work for me, brother. What are you going to do? Have the tournament and have him on last? Well, I just mean in terms of, you know, him not coming away at WrestleMania as champ. No problem at all. No. Next, no. next up, we got Mean Gene interviewing Randy Savage and Elizabeth. Every time we've seen these guys, they're in a different outfit. Uh, Macho Man was sparing no expense at WrestleMania 4, was he not? Randy, you know, again, it just speaks to the professionalism of Randy Savage. As you said, he and Liz, every single match, they came out completely different. Uh, cape, robe, whatever the hell you want to call it, different trunks, different boots, Liz, a different dress. They look spectacular. Let's talk about uh, the next match here on the card. Um, we've got uh, Ted DiBiase and Don Morocco. In the finish, sees Morocco hit a shoulder block on DiBiase, and then Morocco comes off the ropes again and hits a stun gun or hot shot, whatever you'd like to call it. Uh, DiBiase gets the pin five and a half minutes in. Half a star. What'd you think of this match? Okay, well, I didn't think this was a half a star match. It was probably better than some of the other horrible matches that were on the show. And and I like, you know, I'm a fan of DiBiase. And I like Don Morocco. So probably I wanted to like it, but it was still slow. And it, it just, when you're comparing it, especially to today's action, uh, slow motion. And as another way to get heat for DiBiase, as a result of the double DQ with Hulk and Andre, DiBiase gets a bye in the semifinals and goes straight to the finals. So even though people made fun of the bracket, this is good storytelling here. It allows the million dollar man to seemingly have yet another advantage that people can be upset about and tells the story of, you know, Savage had to overcome all odds and we've got, you know, an exhausted macho man against a well-rested DiBiase who seemingly, uh, managed to buy his way into this position. Next up, <laughs> we get Euchre interviewing Mr. Fuji and demolition. And then the one man gang gets a buy into the semifinals because of the time limit draw between Rick rude and Jake Roberts. The next quarterfinal match is Randy Savage and Greg Valentine. That actually gets two and a quarter stars and pretty good for only six minutes and six seconds. The finish comes when Savage goes to the top rope again, but gets caught on the way down with a fist from Valentine. Valentine pulls Savage to the middle and goes with a figure four, but Savage counters that into a small package and we're out of here. I thought this was a pretty good match, especially after a couple of stinkers. It was a good match. And the other thing about this match is I like to point out to younger talent when they go, you, you will tell them a finish and go, okay. And then hit, hit a small package and just wrap him up. Like, what? You know, that's not action. You go back and watch this match and watch how they did it and how simple a small package can be, but also how meaningful it can be at the same time. And this worked good shit. Uh, next up, we see mean gene talking to Vanna about the semifinals. And, uh, then we go to the intercontinental title match with the honky talk man coming out with Jimmy Hart and Peggy Sue. And they're defending the title against Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. And of course we've covered on our Saturday night's main event episode that Sherry is actually playing Peggy Sue here. How did Sherry like being Peggy Sue? 
Sherry loved it because she was working then. So she got to go out and not have to be Sherry Martell. She could take her stuff off afterwards. People didn't know she was Peggy Sue. And she had a lot of fun with Honky and Jimmy. The finish sees Beefcake put the sleeper on Honky and Honky starts to fade. And then Jimmy Hart comes to the apron, knocks the referee out with the megaphone. And then Beefcake puts Honky out, threatens to cut the hair. Jimmy grabs the hair cutting tools and uh, tries to run away. But Beefcake catches him and gives him a haircut on the ring steps. And then Peggy Sue comes in and dumps a bucket of water on Honky to wake him up. Beefcake comes in, but the new ref steps in stops him and stops the match at eight minutes and 58 seconds. So beefcake gets the win by DQ, but that means honky keeps the title a quarter star. According to Meltzer, he was never a fan of these guys, but I thought this told a decent enough story. Dude, it was entertaining. Come on, man. It's, it's beef, you know, it's beefcake and honky. I thought it was entertaining. They did what they were supposed to do. Um, Sort of a fun story from this match. Jimmy Corderas has said that he's supposed to be knocked out by Jimmy Hart, making him unable to check on Honky during the sleeper hold. But in order to do this, Jimmy Hart jumped to the apron and then hit Corderas with the with the megaphone. And Corderas took a forward flat bump instead of a backwards one. So he winds up hitting his chin on the mat and he legitimately knocks himself out. Do you remember this? I don't. I don't. But I can see it happening. Uh, but I do not remember that. Rumor and innuendo is that uh, Brutus got caught scalping his comp tickets. Any truth to that? <laughs> yes. Uh, t- I, I got to hear this story. We've always wanted a dirtbag beefcake story. This is our chance. Well, the, the rumor and innuendo, we had people um, out when it, for WrestleMania and big shows. You know, you always have like undercover cops and different people out there looking for people scalping tickets and doing bootleg merchandise and things like that. And as the story goes, they caught somebody with bootleg tickets, uh, or with comp tickets. And they said, where did you get these tickets? And they said that beefcake sold them to them, that they just bought them from Brutus beefcake. Now beefcake did not get caught in the act. That was someone saying when they got caught with the tickets and they were comp tickets, in a certain section that they were looking out for to say, Hey, where did you get these tickets? Said I bought them from Brutus beefcake. That's the story. I love that. Beefcake, of course, denied it. Yeah. Next up, we see Euchre with Andre the giant. And this is the famous scene where Andre chokes him. Is this one of the most iconic WrestleMania moments ever? Yeah, it's etched in history forever. It was just the Bob Euchre great sell and Andre with the with the wide eyes. Great shit. Was that live or did y'all pre-tape that? No, that was pre-taped. Did you do it earlier that day, the day before? No, we did that early that earlier that day. Did you know when you did that that was going to be an all-time classic? No clue. No clue. It was just a great great finish. One of the most famous scenes ever. The next match is Bobby Heenan and the Islanders against the British Bulldogs and Coco beware. Bobby comes to the ring in a dog handlers outfit, which is just tremendous. Um, where did you guys get that? At the dog handlers outfits are us, uh, depot in Jersey. 
Was it hard to wrestle with that on? It feels like an impossible contraption. It was impossible. Yeah. But I couldn't move in the damn thing. And on top of it, it was about 300 degrees in there. So he couldn't move. He was sweating his ass off. And the damn dog wouldn't attack him. Yeah. You're not supposed to work with animals or children, right? Yeah. It was, it was pretty brutal. And, and, and you go back and you watch Bobby trying to, you know, they, they, put Matilda with a trainer trying to show her how to attack. And she just, you know, she wanted to hump him. She had no desire. She didn't want to bite him. She just wanted to hump him. And Bobby's trying, trying to tap the mat, trying to get the dog to come and trying to bite him and attack him. And it didn't just did not care. And then Bobby running up the aisle was like, he goes, you know, I was just going to stay there and let the dog fuck me. I didn't care at that point. It was so hot. It was so impossible to move. He just wanted to be, be dead done. Uh, the Islanders slam Coco and then drop Bobby on top for the pin seven minutes and 30 seconds, uh, quarter star. And as you said, after the match, Davey would chase Bobby up the aisle with Matilda. He trips and falls and Davey puts her on him. Sort of a fun little deal here. Coco beware's tights though. Have always fascinated me. They have the colorful bird on the side. You know, of course, his parrot Frankie, that's an awesome deal. But then the tights on the back, yellow tights with red letters, just WWF. What the fuck is that? Old school, man. Old school. I think that was his way of saying, if you don't know where I am, look, I'm in the WWF. Check my butthole, baby. I'm in the WWF. Look at there. That's how you know I'm in the WWF butthole. Um, after the match. <laughs> Yellow butt, red hole. Wait, woo. We see uh, Howard Finkel tell the fans to direct their attention to the WrestleMania four banner and they announce Jesse, the body Ventura. And he stands on the platform, takes off his jacket and poses. I guess this was Ventura must pose. What's the point of this stall for time. It's not like we don't get to see him any other time. He's still on TV is the perception. He's a big star. Let's just introduce him to the live crowd. The live crowd didn't see him. So that was his introduction to the live crowd. DiBiase's in the ring. Finkel announces that he gets a bye to the finals. And the next match is the last quarterfinal match. The winner is going to advance to take on Ted DiBiase. And of course it's Randy Savage and one man gang. The finish comes when we see Savage go for a slam, but gang falls on him. Slick then goes up after Elizabeth on the floor and Liz goes to the apron. The officials tied up with Liz. So gang tries to attack with slicks cane, but the ref turns around and sees the cane being used by gang. And that draws the DQ four minutes and 13 seconds, half a star after the match, Savage delivered the double ax handle and gang fell on top of slick. So Savage is going to the finals against DiBiase. what did you think of his match here with one man? Oh, pretty bad, pretty bad. And, and sometimes the logic for finishes that that we would use for baby faces and, and the distraction of Liz and Liz going up and why would the referee leave again? And you're trying to apply today's logic to yesterday's product and it doesn't always work, but watching it back, I was like, Oh boy. Um, not a big fan. At this point, do you think the crowd is still emotionally invested in the tournament? I think at this point in the night, the crowd was ready for the last match and they wanted to see, they wanted to see something happen of, 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 of note. You know what I mean? Nothing really big had happened yet. 
something I've always found interesting is there's not like there's a Titan Tron here. So the live crowd, have they probably lost track of what the fuck is going on here? We would, we would update them. Like when we would go back for the television audience and go to the pre-tape stuff, we would update people. But again, that becomes like the Charlie Brown commercial of the teacher. When the announcer and especially Howard is giving you so much information, it's hard to absorb it all. And that's what was taking place in the, in the live house. So next up, we've got the world tag team titles with strike force, which is Tito Santana and Rick Martel defending their titles against demolition Axe, and smash. Uh, this gets two and a half stars and, uh, we have new tag team champions when smash pins Martel. Uh, the finish comes when Tito hit Axe with a flying forearm, sending him to the floor. Fuji gets on the apron. Santana comes after him. Fuji drops the cane. The ref is distracted with Tito and Fuji. So Axe nails Martel with the cane smash covers him. One, two, three. We've done a full demolition show available now in our archives at youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. Tell me about how Vince felt that demolition was coming along at this point on the other channel on TBS. They're seeing the road warriors and a lot of people, and I know you dispute this say, Oh, it wasn't the road warriors. It wasn't a ripoff, but a lot of people who saw the road warriors first believe that it was, and the road warriors are wrestling the powers of pain, barbarian and warlord. And this feels like the WWF version of that, but this victory really starts their dominance over the tag team division for the next two or three years. And they have one hell of a run. What was Vince thinking about demolition here at WrestleMania four? Uh, Vince was ready to go with demolition, you know, and, and it's funny because I get a lot of feedback on that people that had only seen demolition and had never seen the road warriors before feel the road warriors were a copy of demolition. And that was the, the diehard WWF fan. For Vince, he was ready you know, for them to move forward. I thought this match, and even going back and watching the match again, this is the second best match on the, on the show, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Uh, man, all four guys busted their ass. I liked the finish. Um, he brought it on the cane. <laughs> you know, knocked the living shit out of him with the cane. It was good stuff. And... Uh, I enjoyed it, but you know, you, you got to put it in perspective. There are people that never saw the road warriors That's me. In, until Listen, they came to the WWF this and is more my... people, I think saw the, the demolition first. Yeah. I'm in that group. As I said, this is my first wrestling show. So I was introduced to demolition before the road warriors. So I wasn't one of those guys who thought it was a ripoff, but I know so many do something I've always been curious about here, um, is the situation with the heels and baby faces because the fans are really cheering demolition here and they're not strike force. There's almost no reaction Were the fans really into the gimmick, the music, the look, did they hate the white meat baby face of the strike force? I mean, here they're heels. They're even cheating to win, but they're getting some cheers here. They looked cool. They looked cool and they won. The only thing that was really keeping the demolition heels was Mr. Fuji. And even that, you know, <laughs> was borderline. People thought they were cool and they won. They were good at what they did. 
This takes us to the final match of the night. It's the world title tournament. It's Randy Savage, Ted DiBiase. The winner is going to be the new world champion. And, um, we actually saw this match a few weeks earlier on Saturday night's main event. I think that aired on March 12th. We just covered it in our archives. You know where they are. Um, and Robin Leach is here as the guest presenter of the championship belt. They debuted this at the main event. This is the world famous winged Eagle belt. And I know what you're thinking. Yes. All Eagles have wings. I didn't name it that, but it's the Reggie parks classic that we probably most associate with Hulk Hogan or the ultimate warrior or macho man, or even Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels. But this belt is really featured prominently here. Uh, when Robin Leach brings it out on like a, uh, I don't know, like a red velvet presentation platter. I'm going to freak you out, Conrad. Okay. Because we didn't talk about this earlier. This week, uh, here in my house, uh, Vice, the guys from Vice were here doing a documentary, and they went through like my photo albums and things. Yeah. And they're still out sitting on my desk. And I have pictures of that belt with my dad wearing that belt because I carried that damn thing around when I was out to California for Vanna white and doing the stuff with Robin Leach in Houston. And I don't even know why, but you're, you're going to love it. Cause I've got pictures of me with the belt and my dad with the belt at our house here in Houston that I just saw for the first time in years the other day in a photo album. And I'll, I'll share those on Facebook too, but I'll send them to you here shortly. Um, but the, the, you're talking about this whole presentation and Robin Leach and everything. Well, all this shit's going on. Now, keep in mind, this is right before the last match on the card. Robin Leach is out there, and Vince looks at me and says, God damn it, Bruce, we blew it. I'm like, what? And he says, we fucked up big time. I'm like, what? Robin Leach was wearing a suit and not a tuxedo, and that blew Vince's mind at this point in the show. He had already been out there before, but right now in the presentation, the last match, everything's going on and Robin's in a suit, not a tux. And that's what he was picking apart. That attention to detail events is what sets him apart. Is it not? It is. And the funny thing to me was it, it took us that long to notice it first of all, but yeah, damn it. We fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, oh shit, what did I do? And it was Robin Leach, not in a tux. So let's talk about it. We're here. The final match, man. Uh, our guest ring announcer is Bob Euchre, Mr. Baseball. Our guest timekeeper is Vanna White. And of course the presenter of the world title, all the gold is Robin Leach. And during the match, Savage goes to the top, but Andre stands in front of DiBiase, stopping him from dropping the double ax handle. So Savage calls Liz up to the apron and then sends her back to the dressing room and DiBiase attacks him from behind. And there's been a few times here where Savage has interfered. And I should mention here the entire time since Andre's out here with DiBiase, all of the crowd is looking to the entrance. They're waiting on Hulk Hogan to appear. I can't help but feel like this undermines Macho Man's crowning moment. Because this is supposed to be all about Macho Man, but really everybody is just waiting on Hulk to come out. So 
DiBiase and Savage have a good match. It's probably not nearly what the match was at Saturday night's main event because it lacks some of the heat because you know what's coming and they're ready for it. And this crowd is not your typical wrestling crowd. They're here to see the big stars. And that means Hulk Hogan. So the, if you watch this, I mean, half of the fans in the stands are not even watching the ring. Of course, you know, what's going to happen though. Uh, DiBiase puts a reverse chin lock on and Liz comes up back out with Hulk Hogan and Hogan takes a seat in Savage's corner. The finish saw Savage slam DiBiase off the top. Then he goes for the flying elbow, but DiBiase moves. So he locks in the million dollar dream and Andre grabs the ropes to keep Savage from breaking the hold. And the ref gets distracted by Andre and Hogan comes in and hits DiBiase with a chair. And then Savage goes to the top and hits the flying elbow drop to get the pin and his first world title. Two and a quarter stars, according to the observer. I got to feel like this is maybe questionable booking as far as trying to get him over as the top guy. To me, if you're really trying to do that, and I know what the fuck do I know? I'm the mortgage guy. You wouldn't have Hogan get in there and essentially cheat to make it happen. And it feels like Hogan sort of stealing and Liz. It almost feels like they should say, uh, Hulk, uh, the manager of the world champion, Miss Elizabeth and Hulk Hogan with Randy Savage. Am I wrong? Yeah, you are. It was building Randy for the time that Hulk was gone, but it was also telling the story and continuing the story with DiBiase and Andre and solidifying Hulk and Savage. Where did we go in August? We went to SummerSlam, Mega Powers versus the Mega Bucks. And all of that has to be taken into consideration. If you just examine one night and one match, you know, you, you can mind fuck yourself all day long. And, oh, well, this should have been that. That should have been this. When you're running a business and you're trying to create storyline and different things for the future and you look at the promotion for this whole night, again, the promotion was, for the most part, Hulk and Andre and a tournament for the championship. Unfortunately, the championship did take a backseat to the promotion for Hulk and Andre on that match. But at the same time, you are crowning Randy, and it was a way for Hulk. If Hulk endorses him and Hulk says he's okay, then as a fan, if I had my doubts, Hulk says he's okay, so I like him. Well, and I like him even more now because Hulk says he's good. No, I'm I'm for the endorsement. I, mean, I totally get what you're saying. It makes all the sense in the world. But it does feel a little bit like, well, Randy wouldn't be the champion if Hulk wasn't there to help him. Well, you, you can make that argument, I guess. But at the same time, people were happy and Hulk must pose. You know, oh, it's, no, a different, no. it's a different philosophy. I get why he's out there. I'm just saying, and I, I've always been fascinated with the way Hogan was booked because he's a baby face here, but he's hitting motherfuckers oh. with chairs. And Dude, he, he lost to Andre the Giant, but came back after Andre won in Survivor Series and hit him in the head with a belt. And then a few weeks prior to this on Saturday night's main event, he's choking Harley with tape in the middle of the match. Like everything about Hogan's work here for these six months is as a heel. But Same thing could be said for Steve Austin and The Rock and, you know, people like that heelish stuff, I guess. And, but at the same time, as long as you say your prayers, take your vitamins and whatever else you do, <laughs> I guess it's okay. And choke your opponents with tape and, uh, cheat. But as long as they're bad guys and they lose, it's fine. Win if you can lose, if you must, but, but always, always cheat. cheat.
Hey, so how did Randy feel about Hulk being out there? This was before their relationship was sideways, right? No, he was fine with it because he got the endorsement. And for Randy, looking at that was a passing of the torch as well. For Hulk to be out there to endorse him as champion, plus it takes you to the next big event. Is it fair to say that Vince felt like Macho Man as champion needed a little bit of the uh, the Hulk dust? Yes. Hogan had been the champ for the previous four years. Um, what sort of roll of the dice and gamble was Vince taking, putting it on macho man? Well, it's, you know, in a lot of respects, it's a gamble for three months. I think people were thinking for when Hulk was going to come back from the movie and it is a gamble. It's a roll of the dice and you have to do that. You know, you have to take chances. So people were nervous, but in this, in this regard, all the more reason to have Hulk out there to endorse him, stack the deck, brother, as Hulk would say, you know, you stack the deck as best you can and, and lump everything on him for every reason in the world to love Randy. The tournament idea overall, this is a flop, correct? I didn't like it. I, I think that as an overall presentation to have that whole tournament, I, I thought hindsight, it sucked. You know, if you were able to divorce yourself from being in the company and you're just a wrestling fan and you watched both shows, clash of the champions and WrestleMania four, can you admit that clash of the champions had a better show that day? I can't even other than the flair sting match. I can't remember anything on clash of champions. So that's not fair. I thought that, uh, as far as who had the better match that day, flair and sting did. You know, if you were going to judge all overall matches, they had a better match bell to bell who had more pomp and circumstance and, and overall, sure. I think that we did. No doubt. Um, but again, I, it's not fair to say, cause I couldn't tell you one other match on the WCW or Crockett show. Um, Meltzer sort of criticized Hulk Hogan a little bit in a positive way did. though. He says, the guy is so over that he overshadows the entire promotion. The lack of success of this show was at least in part because Hogan wasn't the featured attraction, but was made one of the boys. Do you agree with that? No, because the promo, because the promotion was about Hulk and Andre. Um, and you know, he, he missed, he missed the forest for the tree or the, or the tree for the forest. Whatever uh, it is. Yeah. Um, he also says, okay, hindsight is always 2020. Nobody would have dreamed that a WrestleMania crowd would be dead for three and a half hours. The Trump Plaza should have been called the Trump mausoleum. It wasn't a wrestling crowd and they reacted to almost nothing, which made those matches where guys were really putting all out still come off as flat and tedious. Vince made a major tactical error, taking wrestling away from the wrestling fans with high prices. Sure. He got a live gate. But he could have gotten a live gate anywhere and he could have priced it. So wrestling fans and not casino high rollers who thought they were watching burlesque filled the stands. McMahon deserves credit for trying to make wrestling an upper-class entertainment. But on this night, the high rollers ruined his show. Fair assessment. Well, no, it's not a fair assessment because he's not taking into consideration all of the other things that were paid for and all the other things that you have to consider when you're running an event, the magnitude of WrestleMania. So the show was great. Did they, did they yeah. suck the air out of the, uh, out of the 
performance and out of the show, yeah, they did. It sucked. And as a performer, no reaction in that deadpan reaction or, you know, guys sitting in suits kind of smiling and laughing and nudging each other and shit like that. It takes away from your performance. You're busting your ass. You're not getting the reaction that you're used to getting is hard on you as a performer. It's very difficult to perform under that situation. So that now has an effect on not only the audience at home watching on television, it has an effect on the performers in the ring and overall drags it all down on every level. But when you're looking at from a business standpoint and everything else on that level, it was a success. No, listen, no, no doubt you guys made more money and, and had a better, you know, presentation. The actual matches though. Eh, nah. Nah. Yeah. Not the best, not the best, not the best. Um, yeah, not the best. In your opinion, this is the worst WrestleMania up to that point by a wide margin, right? Oh God. Up to that point. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I think it may be one of the worst WrestleManias ever. So when it's over with, Hindsight. Though, you know, a lot of times after a show, you know, there's the big WrestleMania party and everybody's all high fives and smiles when we did it and we hit a home run and that had to be what it was at three and it had to be what it was at five. What was the feeling like after WrestleMania four? No, it, it, it wasn't. Um, WrestleMania was a time of work and you know, it has evolved into, into what it is today, but WrestleMania four and WrestleMania five and WrestleMania six, we didn't have parties afterwards. They had, they had a party at three, but, but no, here's what, here's what I'm saying is we didn't have time to go woohoo high five. Hey, good show. We were like, holy shit. Now the work begins. I've got to get the, the Saturday show out, which would normally have been done the Thursday before. Now I've got to go back and we've got to get all this work done. There wasn't that feeling. There wasn't time to even think about how the show was, frankly. So there wasn't that feeling of euphoria that they have now. And that we had in later years when you had. So afterwards was Vince like, God damn it. This wasn't what I hoped for. Or was it just get those goddamn tapes out and that's it. It was, it was, let's go, let's go do promos. Meltzer claims that too many people knew the outcome. He says, after all that has happened over the last weeks, giving the title to Savage was a blunder in itself. Hey, the magazine typo was even picked up by the wire services this morning on the ABC news. It said, quote, Randy Savage was the winner at WrestleMania, but of course everyone knew it since the WWF magazine had printed the result three weeks ago. The WWF claims the magazine report was simply a typo. So lots of people, even casual wrestling fans, not the hardcore dirt sheet newsletters. They're aware of what the finish is going to be. Do you think that affected the enjoyment or the sales or anything of WrestleMania? Or do you think nobody cared? I don't think anybody cared. And I also think that the number of people that knew the number of people that were aware of the typo in the magazine and the number of people that subscribed to Dave Meltzer's newsletter was minuscule. I think that in the whole scheme of thing, you're talking maybe 1% of the audience. Well, what's funny too is, you know, WrestleMania had become such a brand at this time. We sort of joked about earlier that you guys managed to run a hotline commercial inside of clash of the champions on TBS, but after WrestleMania is over, CNN ran the results of WrestleMania on their crawl and they did not 
for Clash of the Champions. Of course, because WrestleMania was a big deal, and Clash of Champions was a regional promotion. But that regional promotion was on the owner's superstation that he endorsed. Let me ask you this. The, um, one of the funny things that happened in that clash of the champions was they did a promo for four horsemen vitamins. Did you ever see those? Oh my God. They actually had four horsemen vitamins. Yeah. Oh boy. They did. And they started it here at the clash of the champions. And so Meltzer reported on it and this is a pretty good line. He says new marketing scheme. Not to be outdone by Crockett's four horsemen vitamins. What a joke. Vince is coming out with his own new item for thirty nine ninety five. You can get something that can calm down hyperactive children and put them to sleep and even help your own insomnia late at night. You got it. It's WrestleMania four, the videotape. Yeah. But the difference is, is WrestleMania four, the videotape made money. Oh God. It was a fucking joke about how awful it is. I feel like in your old age, well, his, his, his comparison, but again, they're mean spirited and they're incorrect. It's a joke. It's sort of like it's not funny. So there you go, boys and girls. It's WrestleMania four coming up at you next week. We've got a very special presentation. It's going to be all about Goldberg in the WWE. The week after that, we're doing a watch along and it's going to be about the very first time that raw beat nitro in the ratings after 83 weeks of getting their ass kicked raw comes back and it's with Steve Austin versus Vince McMahon. That's going to come to you on April 13th on April 20th. We're bringing you Rob Van Dam and the hits are going to keep on coming. We've got a hell of an April coming your way, but first let's get your Facebook questions out of the way. If you've got a question for our Goldberg episode, you can ask it right now on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle Bruce. I want to rapid fire you some questions right fast. Are you ready? Go for it. Gabriel wants to know, did Jimmy Hart like his new haircut? Yeah, baby. It was great. I love this new haircut, man. It feels so good. Kevin wants to know, was there ever a plan to turn Andre face against DiBiase? You know, there, there was talked about it one time, uh, for Andre's last run that that would be the way to go. Nicholas wants to know, was there ever any thought into putting anyone else in the tournament that actually didn't wind up in the tournament? I'm sure there were a lot of people talked about, but it just ended up being what it ended up being. Michael wants to know, had they not left the company with King Kong Bundy or Mr. Wonderful been involved in the tournament? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm tired of, uh, answering Michael Scott Moore's questions. I answer his questions every damn day over at facebook.com, but no, they weren't there. So they weren't considered. Jason wants to know how much coin did Bruce lose at the tables? Back then I wasn't betting a whole lot. Uh, Breeze wants to know why was Butch Reed in the tournament if he was already on his way out? Because he was over in Florida. James wants to know was the winner of the Battle Royal supposed to get something or was it bragging rights and a way to get non-tournament wrestlers on? They got they got that beautiful trophy. Mike wants to know does Bruce get nervous talking about anybody on the show because he knows they listen to the podcast? No. Uh, Rashad wants to know any consideration for Rick Rude to make it a little further in the tournament? I would have loved to have seen rude in that spot versus macho man instead of one man gang in the third round. I mean, there were a lot of ifs, but the final match was always going to be Randy and Ted with the whole Hulk and Andre involvement. Uh, Thomas wants to know, did any of the wrestlers complain about the awkward aisleway with the stairs? <laughs> Bobby Heenan did. Yep. It was, it was brutal. It was long. Chris wants to know, it's been mentioned often that guys have to have a manager's license to be out in somebody's corner. Why have we never actually seen a manager's license on TV? 
believe it or not, in some states still to this day that have athletic commissions, you do have to have a manager's license to be at ringside. Sean wants to know what was the backstage reaction for Macho and Elizabeth after Macho won the title? Was he very emotional or cool modi? It is I just said on this night, everybody's like, Hey, happy, happy. Let's go cut promos. We got to go. We got work to do. Uh, Richard wants to know what sort of casino comps did the boys get this weekend? Uh, a lot of the, I want to say we had a, uh, a pass for a restaurant in Trump Plaza. We had that. And other than that, I don't know. I mean, obviously all the rooms were paid for, but we had a restaurant pass that we went in and used. Uh, Jacob wants to know, how does Andre compare in legit size to the big show? Andre was legit, probably an inch or two taller. Jason wants to know, can we have a random Andre story since we can't have an Andre podcast? Yes, Jason, we've done plenty of Andre stories and nobody ever said we wouldn't do an Andre podcast. What we said was after the HBO special, we might do a companion piece, but if you're thinking there's going to be a six hour long Andre podcast, it's not realistic just because you didn't spend that much time with him. Right, Bruce. Right. And so much of it, you know, a lot of the early years I was a kid and I I didn't spend as much time, you know, with Andre. Uh, Christopher wants to know, hypothetically, what might it sound like if macho man saying with my baby tonight? Spend my days working hard on the go, uh huh? With the hands on the clock or spinning too slow, uh huh? Uh, was there ever any consideration of getting Trump involved in an angle at four or five? He always embodied the natural heel and knew how to get heat. That's from Garrett. No. Uh, Colby wants to know the original VHS was on two tapes. Was that done intentionally to make it look big? Or they just didn't make tapes long enough back then. They didn't make tapes long enough to have the quality that we wanted. And it was like an added bonus to have two full tapes. Isn't it weird that I know it's SP and LP and SLP and SP and all that. Yeah. Yeah. SLP. Yeah. Uh, Bart wants to know how much gambling did gorilla monsoon do that weekend? A lot. Uh, Matt wants to know, did you ever consider making the tournament bracket not always end up as face versus heel? It seems like it it would have been more real if it was face versus face or heel versus heel snuck in every now and again. Okay. People wouldn't have cared. Mike wants to know, no, that's what I'm asking that angel wants to know, did Hercules ever complain about the ultimate warriors work in the ring? No, Hercules, you know, Hercules could work with uh, a brick wall and not complain. Herc wasn't that kind of guy. He'd work with anybody and everybody and come back and say, Hey, good match. Uh, Tony wants to know, was there ever any talk of Andre getting theme music during his entrance? Not everybody got theme music back then. So no, there wasn't really any talk. Maybe the best question so far. This is the last one. We're going out with a bang. Emma writes. Randy Savage stated in an interview that just before the last match, someone locked him in his dressing room and he had to bust the door down to get out. Does Bruce have any idea who did this? (laughs) I think it was Robin Leach. Well, this was fun. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about there. It feels like somebody was ribbing macho man and wanted to lock him in his room. And you're like, guarantee me. No, what? Uh, no, I fucking don't know what they're talking about. It's not funny. 
Yeah. Damn and, it. and neither are you. I think that's what's disappointing to me. We're going to hope that you're funny by next week when we're covering all things Goldberg in the WWE. Ask your questions right now at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Don't miss the morning deuce with Bruce. He's going to show you those pictures. Some of the very first pictures that you've never seen before of the winged Eagle belt. We're going to have the original tournament bracket that was shown on TV. We've also got a snippet from that WrestleMania magazine or WWF magazine that sort of spoiled the WrestleMania finish. We've got lots more coming to you on Instagram. Check that out. It's Instagram.com forward slash Pritchard show. And I also want to tell you, boys and girls, the bonus poll is live and it's live on YouTube. That's right. The poll is not on Facebook. It's not on Twitter. It's on YouTube. And we're not moving the poll permanently to YouTube, but the bonus show was because we asked you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. So if you haven't already, go subscribe. It's youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. And when you get there, click the community button and you'll see right there, you've got four poll topics and here they are. You get to pick what you're looking for. Poll option number one is SummerSlam 1991. The rumor and innuendo is that the ultimate warrior held up Vince McMahon for more money. We've also got the famous incident where we see for the very first time, the big gold belt on WWF television to let us know that Ric Flair is coming to town. And of course, one of my favorite matches as a kid, the jailhouse match where we've got the big boss man and the Mountie. Let's fast forward. Royal Rumble 1992 is on there. WrestleMania eight is on there, but survivor series 91. I feel like is sort of overlooked. This is where Hulk Hogan loses the world title to the undertaker. Nobody saw that coming. We're going to cover all that in long form. If either of those shows win. And of course you already know what goes down at Royal rumble two and WrestleMania eight. Those are not the sleepers, but I do think that we need some more votes for SummerSlam or Survivor Series. So if you want to hear SummerSlam or Survivor Series, you need to get your tail over and vote because we know that it's coming down to the Rumble 92 and WrestleMania 8 unless we get your help. Go vote right now. It's youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. We're out of here. We're done. Are you ready? I'm ready. We'll see you next week right here, boys and girls, for something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Hey everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.